Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. I am your host, Dr. Matt Townsend, your coach, your guide on the side. Welcome to the program, the program where we do what we can to give you the tools, a leg up in this crazy thing we call life today. No exception. Man, crazy weather in the Midwest. It's raining in the Rocky Mountain area. What's going on? It's almost like... It's May. It's like May. Yeah. May comes in like a jaguar and out like it's a... It's like a lamb and a lion or something. That's but March. I think that might have been March. So. Comes in like a lion and out like a lamb. Yeah. May comes in like a jaguar and out like a gazelle. Yeah, that's it. Okay. May. <laughs> May's a great month. Welcome to the program, my friends. This uh, we got a great show today. We are bringing on um, an, an economist and a very interesting economist. First, he's done a lot of research in um, how the economy you know, impacts elections. So we'll talk about kind of the economic you know, state of the – or the state of the economy and how it impacts how you vote and who you might be voting for. We'll be getting into that. But then this also – Dr. David Berry is also a, a sports economist and I want to – because it seems like if you're going to want to make money in sports, boxing. It looks like it. Boxing. But it only happened to be one fight. Yeah. Because most fights, I don't know if you know this, what? don't make that much money. Most fighters don't make like $180 million. Yeah, no. That, that is a, an anomaly. Well, why would they do it then? Um, it's crazy. They enjoy the strategy and I don't know. Some people just like getting punched in the face. Well, yeah. Duh. <laughs> Some just like to get I, hit in the face. But, I, I don't know why people box. Well, I mean, I guess it's – you got to be good at whatever level. But then at at the level I played, which was you know high school, I yeah. played football. And after a while, you're like, what are we doing? Yeah, why are we doing this? It's fun, but you're just running into each other. Yeah, then you get hurt, and then it's all over. Well, I never got hurt. Well, yeah. I hurt other people, but – is that, is that what you're telling yourself? It wasn't on purpose. It just, you know, happened. Yeah. Like when I put my forehead onto the uh, helmet ear hole of another yeah. player and mm-hmm. knocked him flat, I thought that was kind of cool. That was moment. always the best tackle when the guy's helmet was, he was looking out his ear hole. Well, he wasn't, it, it was, it was kind of one of those, it wasn't a cheap shot, but it was pretty cheap, but I still did it and but we you, scored a touchdown. Now so, hey. you know that that's not proper <laughs> tackling technique, right? Well, you you violate yeah. yeah, so you're lucky to be. It's it's one of those gray areas. No, it's gray matter area. Is well, what at it the is. moment, because when he fell down, and then I was looking around like, who'd that guy? Where'd that guy go? And I looked oh. over, and he stood up, and he kind of is that the off. guy seizing on the ground right there? <laughs> he stumbled off the field, and I went, oh, he's fine. Somebody needs to rotate his helmet so he can breathe. Later in life, I t- I kind of questioned those things. I hope you at feel the bad. moment. I was like, wow, that was pretty cool. You you should feel bad. I was. You know, Who seven, knows where that 16, guy 17, you know, it doesn't matter. Um, so anything going on in the news? British voters heading to the polls this today. This is the day. They have. Makes you wonder, will what Cameron is it like a, win? A, a month-long election cycle. What a great deal. They have a spending caps. So you can only spend so much money. Oh, 
instead of you Britain. know They're other so elections. Smart. They're so smart. Instead of an eighteen month circus that we're watching, but I don't know it over here. It's, I think it's very interesting. Over yeah. eighteen months, I think you kind of understand. Three. It's going to be like three billion dollars or more will be spent on the election. That's ridiculous. Yeah, you think there's there's always a better place to spend that kind of money. Well, the but. funny thing is, the same guy that or gal that wins this election is going to be sitting next to Cameron on every you know yeah. G five summit, but they'll spend a thirtieth. So it says one <sighs> of the one of the tightest elections in uh, recent UK voting history. Uh, Prime Minister David Cameron's conservatives neck and neck with Ed Miliband's opposition Labour Party. Labour spelled L-A-B-O-U-R <laughs> in the, the British tradition. Yeah. Opinion polls have been too close to call to indicate which major party will secure enough seats for an outright majority in the 650-seat parliament. If neither party wins overall, smaller parties will begin the talks on Friday to form a coalition like the one Cameron has led with the centrist Liberal Democrats for the past five years. Wow. So there's there's say, say there's like eight parties. Yeah. And you have the two right now that are leading the way, the conservatives and the Labour Party. Labour. And uh, those are the two that have the most, I guess, possibility of winning and votes. And yeah. then those two parties will then go and try to create a coalition. They're, they're, and they they're going to piece together a coalition, which Benjamin Netanyahu yes. did and ticked every – his is a – his is a mess. His is a mess. He had a specific time period in Israel to get that done, and apparently he had. I was listening this morning. The BBC said he had about an hour and a half to spare. Did he? And he got the coalition ready to go. <laughs> Government. And it looks like the Job of the Hut bar. What was that bar called? Uh, or Job of the Hut? Like Most Eisley or something? Yeah, I'm saying so, that wrong. You know, it's just a it's just a band of yeah. crazy brothers. <laughs> Not that they look that so, way, but politically, that's what it looks. Keep like. your eye on that as the election goes on. It'll, there has to be something. Today's the day, right? So yeah, they're voting today. It's awesome. This is fun. Twenty tornadoes reported uh, uh, Wednesday afternoon and, and evening in Kansas, Nebraska, and Oklahoma. Dozens of homes just destroyed in Amber and Bridge Creek, Oklahoma. Passengers and visitors uh, and employees at the Will Rogers World Airport in Oklahoma City. Mm. It's kind of a cool name. Yeah, really. Everyone cool. says international. They say world. Uh, they've evacu- they evacuated people to a pedestrian tunnel for about 30 minutes as storms move through the area. More storms expected in the area over the next few days. This is crazy. This is That's scary time because they'll just keep lining up. Boom, boom, boom. And uh, <clears throat> a story that after all the uh, national news had uh, their story about the tornadoes yeah. and lives at danger. Yeah, and, people and, dying. Yeah, possibly. Possibly. Injuries, property damage. Then they led with story number two, which is a deflated football. Yeah, deflate gate is they the the NFL and their what was it their their independent investigation have found they what? commissioned a report. It's found that there was no deliberate attempt by the New England Patriots to deflate game balls to gain an advantage over the Indianapolis Colts in the AFC Championship game. It found that there was no by the team. Yeah, so the Patriots. Then it says, but that Patriots locker room attendants and equipment assistant participated in a deliberate effort to release air from Patriots game balls after the balls were examined by the referee. So let's be clear. The Patriot team. The team itself. Didn't want, didn't know about it. It wasn't like the coach came down and said do this. Except the people employed by the team. Yes. Did. The report also said, now this is your the part that you told me earlier is your favorite. Yeah. 
it is more probable than not that quarterback Tom Brady was at least generally aware of the inappropriate <laughs> activities. That is a, that was written by a lawyer. Yes, it was. It is more probable than, than not. not. So it is more likely probable than not it's a, likely probable. It's a story problem from the SAT. It is. <laughs> more likely than yeah. not. Uh, she and got there three hours earlier. Was at least generally aware. That he was generally, that now, he had a general knowledge. This was after the AFC title game yeah. where the Patriots blew out the Colts right. and they go on to the Super Bowl. Then you have your, your two weeks of the media trying to figure out what to do with themselves before the Super Bowl. Tom Brady had a press conference. This is what he said. We have the sound here. I have no knowledge of anything. I have no knowledge of any wrongdoing of any... Yeah, I'm very comfortable saying that. I'm very comfortable saying that nobody did it. As far as I know, I don't know everything. I also understand that I was in a locker room preparing for a game for five hours. I don't know what happened over the course of the process with the football. So... But now we know that was back in January that he, he had that. a general knowledge. The the lawyers who they didn't wrote even this, say that he allegedly he was at least generally aware of the inappropriate activities. He was generally aware, even though right there he said he had no knowledge of it. Yes, he was generally aware. Interesting. This so, is the exact same thing I say about my kids. Brady d- d- denied knowing anything about the deflated balls. Patriot CEO Robert Kraft says he will take appropriate actions, but only because fighting the league and extending this debate would prove futile. Right. So he's not doing it because they need to. He's doing it because he just wants this to go away, which it should because we're talking about deflating the football a couple pounds at most. Well, I know, but interestingly, they did it. Well, and uh, interestingly, they covered it up. And you wouldn't do it and cover it up if it wasn't going to be to your advantage, right? There's so much going on during a football game that is no, but come on, sketchy. You wouldn't, I know, but again, it's all sketchy. I'm sure, especially like in the pile when a bunch of guys are on top of each other. There's some probably mean stuff going on in that pile. Yes, there is. However, I've been there. It hurts. You, he wouldn't have done it. He's even said he likes them underinflated a little bit because then you can grip them. Yeah, but he did it. Come on, he did it. It's just you, you you get caught with your hand in the cookie jar, but you still won the Super but Bowl. Like we were, we were talking beforehand, they they probably need to do something yeah. in a fine or yeah. whatever. I don't know if they can prove it yeah, with Tom Brady being involved. Cause well, but see, like, what's interesting? There's even, text and things, but, did you but hear it's kind of vague. Answer. What was Kraft's answer? They'll what? do something. Well, we'll do something. So, so proof is not. Which could mean firing the locker room attendants yeah. involved. Yeah, but see, you start not firing these ho- guys, they're going to be like, hey, I'll do anything to keep my job. Not, and get your, balls future ho- not your future Hall of Fame quarterback. Because they had emails from these guys, and what they were all excited about is autographs. Yeah. They go, I better have some. Uh, I'm going to get some like, autographs. One, guy, one, one, one text said, yeah. I better get some. Uh, what did he say? He goes, we better have some merchandise out of this or shoes or something like that. Of that you better nature. give me some shoes. Or, or we're going to have a rugby game going on, which means he's going to overinflate the football. Yeah. So that That's it's, right. he it's just super... said, I'm going to blow that up. Yeah. So, But he also was mad. He was mad, just frustrated because I guess Brady was texting him saying, are you nervous? Are you okay? Are you worried about this? I'll be fine. Then they saw the dude walk into the bathroom. Yeah, there's a security camera video. But some, you know, sometimes you got to take your footballs Absolutely. to the restroom right before the game, right? Because you don't want them having problems in the game. Things happen. And you, yeah, th- this is the most non-story. 
I don't know. Again, what makes it a non-story is that they because all the NFL. Why did you do it? All the why do you hide it? All the NFL can say is this is for the integrity of the game. Right. Exactly. I don't know how much integrity football has anymore. Well, yeah. Moving on. Well, they'll have integrity after this. Isn't this fun? Oh, Deflate Gate. It's back. Who would have thought? I thought we were done with that story. No. It's back. But there's more news coming down the line. We've got some great uh, stuff coming up. We're going to be talking, though, in the next few minutes with Dave Barry. Dave Barry is an economist who uh, is from Southern Utah University and has been recently um, uh, doing a lot of work in two areas, politics and sports economics. We're going to be actually taking a few minutes on both topics. After the break, we'll be figuring out how the economy impacts The election, that's up next right here on the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Have you ever heard, uh, you know, that the economy... And the state of the economy at the time of the election is a major influence on voters. Do you believe that? Are you going to choose your presidential candidate based on the state of the economy? Well, uh, we're going to get some insight on this uh, subject from a a wonderful guest. Uh, David Berry is an economic professor at Southern Utah University. And he recently um, tweeted about these topics, about the impact that the economy and the economic status of the country, uh, the impact it has on presidential elections. David Berry, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Uh, glad to be here. Great to have you on the show. Teach us. Now, and we, well, you've got a really interesting background, Dave, because you not only, you know, kind of do politics and you're an economist, but you do politics in the economy. We're also going to have you teach us a little bit about sports uh economics as well. I mean, I still have to ask you about Mayweather and Pacquiao, Um, but we'll throw that in later. But first, Dave, uh, talk about the economy. Do people choose their candidates based on the economy? Well, it's not so much that that everyone does this. Uh, What we see in the data is, and this is is research that's been done by a number of different people. Uh, Ray Fair at, at Yale University is a big person in this, but there's been others who've done this also. What you see in the data is that the state of the economy, uh, the economic growth rate, the inflation rate, are the primary determinants of the outcome of the vote. Uh, and if you go back through the, the history of the elections and you, just, and you look at, at who won, what the economy was doing at the time, uh, you, see, you see this persistent pattern. So if you go back to, if you take you all the way back to 1948, which I'm sure you're, you're familiar with. It's, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's I was just reading about it this morning. Yeah, it's like it, 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 1948 election is, is Harry Truman and, and, and Dewey from New York. Yep. Nobody thinks Truman has a shot to win this election. Truman is, uh, he, he does not have a college education. Uh, Roosevelt picked him essentially on his deathbed to be his vice president. Mm-hmm. He didn't even really know the guy. Uh, the economy after World War II completely tanks. Uh, people believe Truman is totally incompetent, has no idea what he's doing. Uh, and he runs against Dewey, and, and even it, Truman's own family says, you have no shot to win this. Dewey's <laughs> going to win. The, the press all says Dewey's going to win. Uh, and, then, and then Truman wins. Yeah. And Truman wins. If you go back to the economy at the time, what had happened is the economy had gone into recession. But then by, by 47, 48, there had been an uptick. And the economy had recovered, and there was economic growth again. And Truman wins exactly the way Ray Fair's model would predict he would win. 
Um, four years later, the economy is tanked again. Uh, Truman drops out. He won't run again because his wife would kill him if he did. Uh, and, and he goes up against uh, – and then they, they, they pick uh, – the Republicans pick Eisenhower, who's never been in politics in his life. Uh, and, and Eisenhower wins easily. Hmm. Uh, and then four years later, Eisenhower wins easily again because the economy is doing well. Uh, eight years later, though, it's Lyndon Johnson running against Barry Goldwater. Uh, the economy is doing amazingly well. Uh, and Lyndon Johnson is doing this great society program, and they win in a landslide. And everyone says, hey, the country is all behind Johnson, and they believe in his programs, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Four years later, Johnson's so unpopular he can't even run again because the economy's not doing well again. Interesting. <laughs> if you were to believe that what matters is issues, then you would have to conclude that a large number of Americans completely change their mind every few years. Yeah, yeah. Do you know anybody who's ever changed their mind on politics? No. Ever. Uh, yeah, especially in a few years. Exactly. Right. And so what's going on here is that there's, there's – this is how I explain it to my students. There's three kinds of voters. There's Republicans, there's Democrats, and there's Independents. Republicans vote Republican. No matter who you nominate, right. that's who they're going to vote for. Democrats vote Democrat. No matter who you nominate, that's who they're going to vote for. So their votes cancel each other out. What's left are the independents, people like, as I tell my students, like myself. Yeah. I am unaffiliated. My contribution to the political process is I am willing to go vote every four years. I will take 30 minutes of my time to do this. Okay? What do the unaffiliated care about? Well, all the issues Republicans and Democrats care about we don't care about. Yeah, <laughs> We're not yeah. in the parties. Right. That's why you're not in those parties, right? Exactly. So what do the unaffiliated vote for? Do I have a job? The way to think about it, think about it like a football game. Are we winning? Yeah. If we're winning, you stay. If we're losing, you're fired. I don't care what you believe in. Interesting. I don't care that we're winning. Is, is it uh, – I guess – so in the end, um, every one of those – so it doesn't matter if it's incumbent or not. It just matters – is where's the economy? And if you're the incumbent in a bad economy, you're going to lose. The, uh, there is a, there is some power to being the incumbent, so you get you get some leeway if you're the incumbent. But it is the case that that the main thing that drives it is the economy, and yeah. and it is the case that if, if you're if you're a president in a, in a where, where the economy is doing well, uh, then you will win. If you go back to Reagan in '84. The economy in 81-82 was so bad that Republicans were telling Reagan, please don't run in 84. This has been a disaster. We are so sorry we nominated you. This has been horrible. <laughs> right. And then the economy recovered in 83 and 84. And, 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 and they did an interview with Walter Mondale years later. They said, did you really think you were going to beat Reagan? Because you only won one state. He said in 83, when unemployment was like 10%, I thought I had a pretty good shot. Yeah, he was sure. Well, about yeah. 84? He said, didn't think I had a prayer. <laughs> you know, he, he, he learned... He, he knew even then, if the economy is doing well, you don't have a shot at this. Uh, which, which is why Clinton won so handily, right? I mean, he that second election, he just rode right through it. Yes. Uh, if, if, if you go back, Nixon's a great example of this because Nixon wins in a landslide in '72, and then Watergate becomes very well known after the election. Right. But what, what people forget is that in '73 the economy tanked. And at that point, Nixon suddenly becomes extremely unpopular because the economy tanked. And then suddenly people go, do you know that he cheated in the last election? I am shocked at that. <laughs> Get <laughs> rid of the bum. He's forced to resign. Yeah, but that's, what, that's true, though. Huh? So, so really, it's almost your, the, your loyalty and the allegiance of the people is based on economic factors. Yeah. If it's bad and you do something wrong, and I mean, because I mean, Clinton also had his scandal, and yet the economy was doing fairly well. 
exactly. You look at, you look at, at Reagan's Iran-Contra scandal. You look at Clinton's scandals. All of those were really bad scandals, and they survived completely. It didn't make any difference at all. Nixon has a scandal, and people are shocked, and they want him to resign. And why? Well, in 73, oil prices skyrocketed, inflation skyrocketed, there was unemployment. People were miserable in, in the, at that point in time, and they're looking at Nixon and saying, you know, we didn't know you were cheating the whole time. That's ridiculous. <laughs> and, and, and so it is the economy that drives recessions. Had the economy still been doing well in 74, I really think people would have looked at Watergate and went, eh, you know, these things kind of happen. Whatever. After all, yeah. in 1960, Kennedy and Nixon both cheated. So. That's right. Well so. well, so talk about... Then does okay. So when a second term president is done and leaves a nice economy, who has the advantage? Well, there is. This is one thing that that's in the Ray Fair model is that there is a uh, there is a duration effect that the longer your party's in power, the more likely you are to lose. The more likely there'll be a switch. Hmm. Uh, and so so there is a so so you know the longer you go along, the more likely something will happen. But. So, so you know, if you but if you inherit a good economy, you know, if the economy is going to be doing well in 2016, it's likely the Democrat nominee will will win the election, regardless of what arguments the Republicans make. And, and that was true also in 2012 that that Mitt Romney was at a disadvantage because the economy had started to do well. Yeah. And it was also true back in 2008. In 2008, McCain had very little chance of winning that election because the economy was doing very badly and the Republicans were the incumbents. Right. That's right. Yeah. So it and so going forward, you would say uh, Hillary Clinton. Well, or or may is does she have an advantage because the economy seems to be doing better and better. The, the economy as long as now you have to understand. I mean, we're we're sitting here. It's it's only twenty. Yeah, and we've got eighteen. We, months, we, we, we right. still have you know several months to go here before we get to what the economy is going to be like in twenty sixteen. One of the things about the economy is that economists are asked to forecast this all the time, and we actually cannot do that. Right. So we have no idea. I mean, well, we said that we have no idea, but we don't have as much idea as we seem to think we do. Yeah, that's such an interesting. Well, and boy, we sure could save a lot of money in the polls if we could just we could pay economists instead of pollsters. Uh, we would save a lot of the, the expense that we put into these elections, where you spend two years on this, is completely unnecessary. Yeah. Because it's not changing anybody's mind or anything. No, we've Nobody, talked about that. We're so partisan. It's more like a sporting event, isn't it? it, it Actually, there was actual. Yeah. There's been research that has said that really, when it comes to politics, partisans treat this like sports. They actually did a, a survey of, of, of partisans, and they said, "What do you want out of your politicians? Do you want them to enact your policies, or do you want them to win?" And they rank winning more than policies. They really <laughs> want their politicians to win the election. Losing on election night feels bad. Oh, come on. We're so that's just pitiful. Um, we're going to take a break. We're talking with Dave Barry, and he is um, a professor down at Utah State, Southern Utah University, sorry, Southern Utah University, and teaches sports economics and economic history. He's the lead author of The Wages of Wins and Stumbling on Wins, numerous academic publications on the subject of sports and economics, also past president of the North American Association of Sports Economists. We'll take a break, come back, and continue our discussion about politics and the economic state of uh, the union. Also, we're going to come back and get into a little sports um, and economics as well. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio.
Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, today we are talking with Dr. David Berry from Southern Utah University. He uh, recently has been tweeting out about uh, some interesting topics he teaches his students down there. And uh, one of them is the impact that the economy has on on elections. And it, it's probably a better indicator, according to Dr. Berry, it might be a better indicator than maybe any other measurement we're taking. W- would you go that far, Dave? Uh, in terms of, of, of predicting outcomes, uh, obviously, if you, you know, polls matter, but it's, right. polls are being driven by the economy as well. So it's, it's, yeah, it's the economy that drives is, is basically what drives it. It's the foreign policy issues. Most Americans are not really that familiar with what's going on in foreign policy or why you're doing what you're doing. Or, so there was a whole discussion we had with, we have a, we're trying to do a treaty with Iran. I right. doubt most people who commented on this have ever read the treaty or <laughs> know what the options would be or right. know where Iran is. Um, so none of those really, that's not something that really affects people's thinking when it comes to politics, I don't think. Well, yeah, and you think about it, it's just, it, there's just a bunch of wonks and then, People that follow wonks, wonkies, I don't know what you call them, but they they just they're into it. A certain percentage are, you know, active in the process of thinking through all of this. But the majority just are glad they have a job and life seems to be going better because fuel prices are lower. So I have more money in my pocket and I actually paid off some debt. And it seems like we would for sure be voting from our wallet. Well, I, I think a, a way to illustrate this, and I tell my students this, is I think the worst channel that's on television, that if you're flipping through the channels and you come to this, you leave this probably as quickly as possible, is C-SPAN. Yeah. Uh, C-SPAN is easily the most boring thing to watch. To actually watch people make policy right. is terrifically uninteresting. It's like and making sausage. It is. It's awful. And I, I, and I tell my students this. If, when you half see speed. people run for Congress or run for the Senate, they are running for the opportunity to live in C-SPAN. They're going to live in that. <laughs> I know. That's that, true. That should disqualify them, I think. I think people should look at them and go, is there something wrong with you? Why do you want to do this? Yeah, yeah. If you had to look at, in your magic you know, mirror, what, would you, what do you predict in the next two years as far as economics, the, the state of the economy— and and if you if you were asked to put some money on the line, where would you go? Who would you choose? I, I, the economy has been growing since 2009 is when the last recession ended. So the economy's actually been growing now for six years now. Yeah, which is a really long time. Uh, and so one would expect that there's going to be a recession at some point here. Uh, and again, I, I don't think you can predict exactly when right. that recession is going to happen. But here's the thing to think about. If you go back to 2004, if, you, if the Republicans got a chance to do that election over again, do they really want George W. Bush to win in 2004? Because had John Kerry won in 2004, and he almost did, then he would have been president in 2008, and he would have had no chance to be reelected. There you go. And if that would have happened, Mitt Romney, he could have tried harder in 2008. What if Mitt Romney would have been president in 2008? Right now, how... how how would people regard Mitt Romney as president right now, given what's happened to the economy since 2009? Right. He'd be king. He would be, he'd be considered one of the greatest presidents ever, and he's not because Kerry fell 180,000 votes short in Ohio and lost that election. Isn't that amazing? And it really, so you think and you tie it, it to the economy, and it all makes sense. And if, if you think about it, if, if that recession that's going to have to happen, and we're going to have another recession, this is how the economy works, what if that recession happens in 2018? 
and you're the Republican who just got elected, mm. do you want to be president at that point? Because there, there really is nothing the president can do to stop these things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, or they wouldn't happen. <laughs> That's right. So, so, so really, you, you want to think about this strategically. Yeah, see, that's the problem. Nobody wanted to be the president when this happened. Yeah, it's funny because nobody's thinking that way. I mean, everyone just, I guess it's just we want it now, and we actually have this belief that we're going to change this wave. Yeah, oh, people have this idea that presidents really matter and that they actually affect. I think people have this idea we're electing a king. Mm. And I, I would imagine every president who gets elected, they sit them down the first day and say, you know all the things you promised on the campaign trail? You don't actually have the power to do any of those things. Right. You don't have the power to do much of anything, actually. So just go uh, get on C-SPAN and slow everything down. <laughs> yeah, most things that presidents promise are actually things that are done by Congress. So when they, when they discuss you know, what tax rate should be or what spending should be, that's Congress. That's not the president. It's, it's amazing that we don't actually call the candidates on this and say, excuse me, do you know what job you're applying for? Because you don't, you don't get to do that. It, it really is. Um, it's interesting, too. I mean, as people that are studying the numbers, and, I, and I've heard the theory out for years, but it, it does make sense. It, it, people, I mean, they, we all have our issues, but we tend to balance each other out on the on the general issues when it comes down to economic stability that does seem to to it, does that go back farther than 1940 uh this this is something that that what little research i've done this so i presented a paper a few years ago on this and and uh, the approach that ray fair and others have taken works till about 1916 1920 back huh. to that far so about a hundred years has worked if you go back to the 19th century... Almost till the Depression, or since the Depression. Well, it, it, probably... Well, actually, since it, it goes actually back to since the government actually started collecting the data. Okay. So when we started publicizing this, because in the 19th century, you would never have known if we were in a recession. There was no government data telling you this all the time. Right, right. And so in the 19th century... The economy, the data, you know, I've gone back and looked at what the economy was doing at each election. It has no effect on the election at all. It doesn't make any difference at all. Because the, the people voting had no idea what was going on. They didn't, they didn't know if you're in a recession. And, and you, wouldn't, you really wouldn't know we were in a recession unless we told you. Yeah. Well, what it might be telling us then is everybody's running for president for other reasons than the economy per se. It's it's almost like there's there's other benefits. Even if you're going to end up losing four years later, you're going to still, you know, make fifteen other changes that will seemingly matter to your party. Well, I, I think from the candidates' perspective a number of these people who are running right now are not trying to win, they're trying to raise awareness of an issue that they care about. Yeah. Uh, and so that's that's part of their motivation. So they, I, I tell my students, if you remember the story of Howard Dean, yeah, uh, Howard Dean ran for president. He was a he's a doctor, and he ran for president. <laughs> and he's a screamer. Well, he he wasn't a screamer. I, I have a theory why he became a screamer. Why did he? Become uh, he a was a doctor, and he ran for president to talk about health care. And then he gave a speech on the Iraq War, <laughs> and he became suddenly the front runner. Yeah. His wife, though, is also a doctor, but. Unlike Howard Dean, who was at the bottom of the class, she was at the top of the class. She's like an actual doctor who's good at it. <laughs> and she did not want to be first lady. And anyone who's married would know the look on a wife's face when she is very upset with her husband. <laughs> yeah. And they gave an interview after he became frontrunner, and the look on her face 
pretty much screamed, you are going to lose this election. I am never going to be a first lady. You were not supposed to win the stupid thing. Interesting. Start losing. And that, <laughs> I suddenly start screaming at, at things and yeah. doing crazy stuff. <laughs> it's really, oh, politics. The t- it's, such a, it's just such an interesting, there's such an interesting story to all of these. Talk, I've got to have you, I've got to pick your brain while I can about, um, let's change the subject to students and, and sports and the economics of uh, sports, because th- there was a story out, and I know you commented on it, about student athletes and some studies that have been done, I think, by the Pac-12, and how these students, they have to do so much work to be an athlete that they can't even do their grades. They can't keep their grades up. Do you remember that? Yeah, it is, yeah I've done a, I've done a, lot, of, a lot of work on, on the NCAA, and, and I've written about this for Time and for the Atlantic and academic work. And uh, it, it's pretty clear that, one thing, student-athletes are typically generating far more revenue than you're paying them in, 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 in whatever scholarship cost you think that is. And it's also the case that this is very much a full-time job. Yeah. You're being asked to work 40 hours a week. I, I, I had students this, this semester at Southern Utah University, and, and we're a smaller athletic program. But once spring football kicked in, you could tell that the football players were much more distracted. They were, they, at the beginning of the semester, they were into the class, and they were following what was going on. And then spring football happens, and they get really distracted because suddenly they're working on this for 20, 30 hours a week. Hmm. And, and then they say, okay, I want you now to focus on your classes. And yeah. it, that's a, you know, if I suddenly tell you as a student that you have to go do something for 20, 30 hours a week where you have to focus on that, this is not like working at Taco Bell. <laughs> right. You know, you have to go focus on something for 20, 30 hours a week and try really hard to do something. And, and then compete for your job that, and your scholarship. And, yeah. and, and, and it's a physical activity, too. I mean, they're, they're physically tired by the time they're done doing this. Yeah. And then you say to them, okay, now I want you to go study. Okay, that's a little unrealistic for a 19-year-old kid to ask. Right, right. That's not going to happen. Uh, and, and so, and I, I, and I have to imagine that at a school like University of Utah or, or at much bigger programs, it's even a bigger problem. Uh, and, and so to sit there and say, you know, hey, you, you're, you know, you're, we're going to give you an education, uh, it, you're making it very difficult for them to collect on that. Well, that's, that's true. We're going to give you an education because you'll come play. Uh, you're not, your grades will be horrible. You probably won't walk away educated because you're going to be too busy having to keep a full-time sports job. And, and that, was the, that was the actual, I, I was involved in the, the Northwestern Football Union case, so I was the expert witness there uh, right. hearing in Chicago last February, uh, a year ago, February. What's your take and, on that? Do, do, should we be paying them to play, paying oh, college I, athletes? Absolutely. This is the only place in our economy where we ask people to do work, and then we tell them, uh, we're going to fix your compensation, and you're not allowed to negotiate. I mean, nobody, nobody would accept that, and I, and I said that in the hearing. Every single person who is opposed to students getting paid is getting paid. That's and true. if I told you that your employer is going to fix your wages and not let you get paid above a certain amount, which is well below your value, that you would, you would instantaneously sue them. Right. And, and you can illegal. use my brand and my likeness, and you can use everything that is me. Yes, but you won't compensate me yeah, for but, that. And that, that's totally ridiculous. And, and you can go through and you can look at how much revenue is being generated in college sports. All of that is, is, is made publicly available. And you look at what they compensate the players with, and it's something like they're paying them less than 5% of the revenue. And typically, 
in professional sports, they pay 50%. And wow. in the economy at large, it's usually 60 to 70%. Wow. And so you're paying them less than five and then saying they're getting a good deal. In what world is that a good deal? That's not a good deal. Right. That's well, a horrible deal. Well, and it would be a great deal if they actually, not a great deal, a deal if they actually walked away with a great education, but they also yeah, aren't even getting that. Yeah, you are very much hampering their ability to collect on what you're promising them. Uh, and so it, and this is what came up in the Northwest. The reason why the Northwestern case happened is because the quarterback on the team had been promised when he was recruited at Northwestern that you, will, you can be a pre-med major at Northwestern. So you can become a medical doctor if you come to Northwestern. Oh, wow. And then he gets there and he's told, I'm sorry, all of those classes convict, conflict with football practice, and you can't take that major. Ugh. And, and if you go talk to you, you talk to the student athletes. They are they, you know, I've I've spoken to them, and they are often told things in the recruiting process that simply aren't true. Just and, to get them there. They're, once they're signed, they can't do anything about it. They yeah. can't. It's really hard to get out of the deal because their eligibility stuck, and they might lose a year of eligibility. Yeah, it's a nightmare. And so, so there is an incentive to tell these kids anything to get them to sign on the bottom line. And then once they sign, well, yeah, I, I know I told you that, but it didn't work out that way. Where do you think this is going, this is going to end up? Because do we, how do you, how do you start paying them? And then, because if you pay the football team that might be profitable on a, on a, on any campus, even though statistically I hear one of our guests a few months ago was telling us like one in five athletic programs are profitable. Yeah, that's actually nonsense. That's, is it? that's totally ridiculous. They, they would all be considered profitable if it was a regular business. Okay, okay. These so, are all so that's non-profits. yeah. They have an incentive to spend every dime that comes in. Oh man! If you look at the revenue cost statements, uh, surprisingly, a large number of the revenue cost numbers that come from colleges end up adding up to zero. They, the, the difference is zero. Hmm. Can you imagine a business where that always ends up being zero? How is that possible? <laughs> that's right. That's, that's, a remarkable coincidence. They spend everything that comes in, and then when they do that, when it's all been spent, they say, we didn't make any money. Yeah. There is no one to collect the profit. It's not owned by anybody. Interesting. Where do so we go in the future? That. Where does it end up? It ends up with, I think, we're going to see a large number of law. There's already a large number of lawsuits on this. And at some point, it, it goes to where you say, look, these are people who are employees. They are, the, the, the National Labor Relations Board's already ruled their employees. If they're employees, these labor market restrictions are not legal. Uh, and so the NCAA is going to have to find a different way of doing business. And it is not the case that if I pay the football players X amount of money, I have to pay the gymnastics team the same amount of money. Mm-hmm. That's not how labor markets work. People get paid according to how much revenue they generate for the firm. They, get, they generate different amounts of revenue. They get paid different amounts. Yeah. So that's, you know, we don't pay the university president the same thing we pay a college professor. No, that's right. They're different labor markets. And it's, so it, yeah. you pay people differently depending on the market. That's how this works. And so they, 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 the NCAA has a long list of scare stories they tell people. And it's all just nonsense. They, they just make up this stuff uh, to tell people that, you know, if, if, if we um, – if we start paying the players, we're going to cancel all these programs. The latest thing is they said if, if we pay the players, we're going, to, we're going to eliminate a whole bunch of scholarships and get rid of all, all these athletes. It's like that's not true. Right. We're not going to do that. Well, you know that. You know? I mean you've got the, the, the final games of all of these, these programs are with major branding, Tostitos or whatever. All of these major brands are gathered around. You know there's money being made the entire year. Oh, 
Yeah, there is. No, there, there's the, – the, if you go through and you look at – and I've done this when I've written articles on this. You just go through and say, okay, let's imagine it's a professional sports team. And, and in professional sports, you pay 50% of your revenue to your players. If that were the case for a school like Duke, they'd be paying players uh, – their top basketball players be, be paying paid something like 2 to $3 million a year. Wow. Well, yeah, look at, yeah, look at Kentucky. Four of them are gonna, going pro or whatever this year or maybe more. I mean, seven. It's seven. Is it seven? So your it's entire seven, team seven going pro. But you, they took you to a national championship. So yes. what, interesting. And yet none of those athletes made supposedly a dime. Exactly. Isn't that that's yes. that's a racket? And, and 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 Kentucky only has to promise these freshmen who declare for the NBA what the amount of education they get that they have to get is one semester. Oh wow! Because you don't have to go the second semester if you're turning pro because the semester ends after the season ends, and I can't declare you ineligible at that point. <laughs> oh wow! Okay, so, Dave, we got to have you back because I I want to we got to get into this too because something's got to change and. It just seems like, too, in the end, it really isn't even an educational pursuit. So why are they even attacked, or why are they even attached to universities anymore? We're the only country in the world that does this. I mean, yeah, these should all be pros, like junior pro teams or whatever. Interesting stuff. Ah, oh, David, great stuff. Again, Dr. David Berry, so appreciate you being on the show. Uh, great, great insight. Uh, and everybody, go go find him on Twitter as well. The easiest way to find him there is at Wages of Wins. At Wages of Wins. You can follow him on Twitter. Dr. David Berry from Southern Utah University. Interesting thing, man. The economy, money. See, it drives everything. The root of all evil. Well, maybe. We'll take a break, my friends. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back right here on BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Holy cow. Uh, it's fun to talk to somebody like Dr. David Berry because these people spend their entire life studying and working on this. And then he is a special witness in the Northwestern case. Um, but something's got to change. This is a Duke player could make $3 million, $2.5 million or whatever if they paid him what he's bringing in and they they were following the traditional model of of economics in sports which means duke's making a ton of money and okay then we'll give you a really good education which would be fantastic and no matter what i guess you could maybe if you just stick to the plan you leave with a you know you leave with a diploma from duke you may not have learned much because you've spent well, not the so point. many hours. The point that they're there is not to go to school. It's to play basketball. And especially in the case where they, they're one and done. They do one year and yeah. then go pro. They're really just there to play basketball. So like he was saying, you do the one semester to stay eligible. Yeah, yeah. Then you just don't go to school because you don't have to be eligible That's anymore because right. the season ends halfway through and then who cares? Well, and so we know that. 
everybody sees that. You see what Kentucky did but with seven You watch the players. NCAA tournament, and in the post-game interview, there's some guy that gets up there, all right, questions for the student-athletes. <laughs> and it's just kind of a joke. It's like, what are you... Well, what's this facade that you're trying to right. continue here? Well, and then they make a huge, huge deal about um, Reggie Bush. Is, uh, was he the running back? Yes. He, he took – there was a house involved. There was money involved yeah. from people who were trying to position themselves so that when he did go pro, he would use them as, the, as the his, agent. his agent in but his football you're career. You're at USC, probably one of the top contenders at that time, year. At the time, it was, yes. He's the one of the top running backs at that time, making USC millions of dollars. USC smiles and says, go get your good education. That's what we're bringing you here for. But, I mean, why? how on earth would money not get into that? You know you're making USC $10 million or whatever. Yeah. And you're getting paid. You have $300 food stipend to go – which is why in uh, the bigger conferences in football and, and sports in general have uh, asked for the ability and received the ability to up the stipend that's yeah. given to players when it comes to food, when it yeah. comes to the amount of money that they but, have. So just what do you cash. up it to? Oh, we'll give you five hundred a month. Yeah, where's the a thousand a month? Well, and they, you're like, what? Well, that turns into I can another. Sell my autographs. Who was that, Johnny? Uh, uh, who Manzel? Was, Manzel from sold Texas A and M. He was selling his autograph and. Or allegedly, allegedly. was. Yeah. But, you know, then I'll, you make 500 bucks for one autographed jersey. Yeah. Do that all day long. And then, well, the, the other problem is when you sign your autograph, just some kid wants to have your autograph, you sign your autograph, and then a couple weeks later you look on eBay and they're trying to sell it for five, $600. Oh, man. And you're sitting here with no money yeah. as you're studying for your economics class or something. Well, and it's all huh. supposed to be noble. It's like you're heroes of the children. Yeah. Except... These schools are taking advantage of you. They're making well, millions. I don't know if they're taking advantage. You do sign paperwork coming in. To be taken advantage of. And if you, you <laughs> need to read the paperwork, read the fine print. Well, I know, but the, the deal is the system is, the system is taking yes. advantage. Yes. And, what's, and then we all look at each other and we all praise the NCAA because they're getting so many of these kids through school. No. They're making millions and millions of dollars on these players and then – Supposedly getting them through school, they're getting them degrees, and that's good. some of them. Yes, yeah, a percentage of There's them. There's a percentage, and they they enacted rules to make it so that you have to hit a certain number. Yeah, so that you are actually graduating people. There is a student aspect to the student athlete. See, some of this does make sense at a JUCO level because that they're probably you know those are people that may not ever go pro, yes. and they did get them out of the, you know, they got them out of the hole. But come on. We just gotta we just gotta get more informed and start questioning things. About fifty more lawsuits, this thing will be fixed. Good stuff, folks. The Matt Townsend show. We're gonna take a break. We'll come back next hour. More ideas, more tools to help you see the good in the world. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show, hour number two of the program, where we give you the tools, the solutions, the ideas. We bring in the thought leaders to help you 
you know, find a better life, create a better life. Today, we've got a great guest coming up. Pico Iyer is his name. And uh, you may have seen him on Oprah. He was just uh, recently featured in an interview with Oprah about uh, his book called The Art of Stillness. Just getting away from the crazy chaos of life and finding stillness. And in the stillness, finding yourself, finding a better life. We'll be talking to him a little bit later today uh, in how we can create a little more stillness in our own lives, which, heaven forbid, we need. I need some stillness. I have kids. I have a bad ankle now. Plantar spreading up my leg. Really? Eventually, I'm going to have my leg taken off. Okay. I was walking down the hall thinking, I bet I'll lose my leg. No, you just need to have more stillness. <laughs> I need to just sit still with my foot up. Anyway, stillness. No big deal. Uh, has anybody heard from um, James? No. James is on his honeymoon, and we haven't heard from him. That's weird. Mm, no. Seems I thought for sure he would have called like 10 times by now. Have you heard at all, Michael? I haven't heard anything. Should I text what him right now? What if he's dead? I hope I mean, not. He's okay. You sure? Yeah, he's fine. Because it seems really still. Okay. I, I would suggest leaving him alone. Let I, him have this week. Yeah. Don't, don't, but don't. We've, we've left him alone for almost the alone. whole week. I mean, I know, only we called can't him twice over the weekend. <laughs> yeah, he, what is it, 10 o'clock the night he got married, he texted me? Oh, that's pitiful. I'm like, what are you doing? What, it, what was he doing? I don't know. He didn't really go into detail. He just texted you. It was, but it wasn't like, help. It was, a, it was about something help. else. It was about hey, something Terry, else. what's up? Yeah, he's like, how's it going? How are you doing tonight? So I'm just hanging out. Yeah, I think we need to get a call into him. It's a week almost tomorrow, right? So, yeah. Well, I'm worried about him. <laughs> you want to interrupt his honeymoon? I don't want to interrupt it. I just oh. want to. I just want to have him report. So a report, how would that not be interrupting? Well, I think it'd be an opportunity. I had someone on my honeymoon from work call me and really? ask me just some rudimentary everyday sort of question. And I went, you do realize I'm on my honeymoon? And he goes, oh, right. And they hung up the phone. Didn't say goodbye. Didn't wait for an answer. Just went click. See, and you don't hate him. Not officially. So James won't care. <laughs> Let's just plan a call. Tomorrow, that would be great. Right. That's just that. Just, by the way, makes great radio. Interrupting honeymoons. Yeah. <laughs> what we got to do is let's just try to call him because he won't be listening to the show. So we'll just. So we're call not. Him. We're not going to set anything up. We're just going to call. Cold call. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And then I'll just ask him a question. <laughs> will you introduce yourself? No. You'll just. I'll just say James. It's Matt. I will. I'll say it's okay. Matt. I just have one question. Just one question for you. We can and, probably do that right now. And we won't even we won't tell him we are on the air. Okay. Well, okay. I mean, I know legally, ethically, morally we should. Right. But that's not fun. Okay. We'll just have to explain that he can't swear. Oh yeah. Well, he won't swear. So, I we let's we we'll we'll plan it tomorrow. But we're going to just spring it on him. All right. I promise he's not listening. We can do it. He doesn't even listen when he's here for the show. So I know he's not listening when he's on his honeymoon. Yeah, he sits in the room and doesn't listen. Yeah. It's an, it's an art. It really is. He's Just, very gifted that way. He goes into his moment of stillness, as we'll talk about coming up next. In fact, and tweet us. Uh, what's our Twitter handle? At Dr. Matt Show. 
at Dr. Matt Show. <laughs> Tweet us at Dr. Matt Show um, what we should ask. Yeah, tell us what we should ask James. He's on his honeymoon. We're going to interrupt it tomorrow. <laughs> what would you ask someone on on their honeymoon? Or especially James. Yeah. Because this is just... Do you think he got another haircut? No. It's been a week. I don't think he'll need one for okay. a while. <laughs> he looked great. I was driving home, and he was walking down the sidewalk coming back from getting his haircut. That really? day when he... Yeah. I, I remember seeing... I was, uh, Did he look you know, good? There's always people walking around. You yeah. don't really pay attention. And, but you saw him. Wait. That's someone I know. That guy, yeah. And he's got nice, you know, lack of... I couldn't really tell. He, he, he doesn't really have a lot of hair. No. And... He, I guess, had less hair after the haircut. But. but, you know, he used to grow it out and comb it in a way that it looked like he had a lot more. Like and a comb over? He no. just gave in to reality. He just, he just fluffed it up a bit. Yeah. I read something that said when you shave your head, yeah. you look tougher. You do, and you're, you're more attractive, yeah. and people think you're more powerful. If you're bald, people think you're more intelligent. I know. Don't they also think you're more honest if you're Probably. bald? Probably. Could be. What's the deal with bald people having all these advantages? Yeah. Shaving my head. God gave you hair for a reason. I don't know. So at some point, you need to embrace the baldness. You do. Yeah, you do. Today is the annual mm-hmm. observance for the National Day of Prayer. Okay, so today is the day we observe the National Day of Prayer, even though we all pray daily. It's set for the first Thursday in May, designed okay. by the, uh, designated by the United States Congress. Cool. So all these other ones usually that I bring up are just, you know, some marketing scam. Yeah, but this is this a real one. This is legit. This is the day of prayer. When people are asked, it's a day people are asked to turn to God in prayer and meditation. Cool. Or stillness. We may be talking stillness, about that next. Stillness, that's a perfect segue. Each year in its inception, the president has signed a proclamation encouraging all Americans to pray on this day. The modern law formalized in uh, 1952. This is great. Now, it was challenged in court in 2011. Oh, by people Boy. wanting separation from religion and the state, because here you have the government telling you engaging in a day of prayer, right? And the court went, uh, "No, go away." I mean, they had some official legalese type of mm-hmm. response to that, but in essence, it was no, go away. That's tragic. Eh. So, National Day of Prayer. Read o- the dollar bill. Observe how you will. God, we trust. Uh, FBI. Says there is no link between the Texas shooting earlier this week okay. and ISIS. And they know that because they were flying a, an airplane over Baltimore. Well, they were flying an airplane over Baltimore. Oh, my mixing story. Two, two. It's a different story. <laughs> okay. But that's good. Looking at the, that's actually interesting. The so they're saying there's no connection. Nothing. They're saying that this is just more rhetoric and they do not actually currently think yeah. that the two men that were involved in that shooting had any connection. At this point, it was a lone wolf. They might have been inspired. Yeah, they yeah. But, but not they weren't, directed. They weren't directed and talking regularly. They okay. were trying. Yeah. I don't think anyone was listening. If that was ISIS, would that have been the first domestic attack? Yeah, on- if it was. Uh, hello, is this ISIS? <laughs> Yeah, uh-huh. I'm just wondering if I can do an attack in Texas. Four, four Islamic <laughs> State leaders are now listed on the U.S. Department of State's Rewards for Justice list, which offers a collective $20 million for information leading to the arrest of these individuals. Which individuals? Leaders of ISIS. There's a official <laughs> spokesperson. There yeah. are a couple of commanders. So we'll pay there's... lots of money. We've been doing this for a while, and yeah. yet, okay. So there's a lot of money on their They're heads. just trying to get it out there so that... In case you call ISIS, hello, is this ISIS? Yeah, I'm looking for. Is this ISIS? Somebody um, that's on the most wanted list. 
So if you can have any information leading to the arrest, you can make some money. Okay, that's good. Rand Paul? Yes. He learned a $100,000 lesson recently. If you're in the public eye, especially a politician running for president, you need to snag every single .com or .org. Oh, no. That could be associated with your name in March. A month before he formally announced he was running for Republican the nomination, the, his Senate re-election campaign paid $100,000 to a third-party firm to obtain RandPaul.com. Ah, oh, nightmare. This out of the LA Times. While the site at one time was run by supporters of Paul, no one is sure who owned it at the time the payment was made. Two of Paul's GOP comrades made the same mistake, if not not securing their own domains, and they are now dealing with some of the online embarrassment. CarlyFiorina.org shows the 30,000 sad faces representing the people <laughs> that she fired from HP. Yeah, it's sad. And uh, while she was the, yeah, the chief executive there, TedCruz.com sports the decidedly not Ted Cruz message of support President Obama immigration reform now. I, I went <laughs> and bought every one of the RandPaul.biz, RandPaul.info. No, not info. Dot TV. Dot TV. Dot Australia. Dot UK. Dot AU. UK. I bought every one of them. <laughs> and interestingly, didn't make a dime on it. <laughs> and that's the, that's the thing now. It's been, a, it's been a, yeah. a trend for quite a while, cyber squatting. Yeah. You simply purchase a domain and wait to get paid. Yeah. Because when people try to do something official, you want it as simple as possible. And something like RandPaul.com works. You don't want RandPaul2016.com because right. that could be taken too. So you try to tie up all these so that just in case you need one of these .coms or .orgs, .net, whatever, that you have it instead of having to pay a hundred grand to basically get the hostage situation <laughs> yeah. taken care of. Oh, it's tragic. You can't even – you don't even have your own name anymore. I mean you can't get your name without paying a hundred grand. It's sad. Sad. And then you die. Well, that's uh, good. Any other headlines we're going to hit? Do you have time? We have – Ten seconds. Ten seconds? No. Okay. Not for ten seconds. Um, National Day of Prayer. Hey, Mike, will you make sure I, – I want the phone number to ISIS. Yeah, I'll get that for you. Hold on. I'm going to be going – It has to be on Google, right? Yeah, I'm sure it is. I'm going to call them. ISIS hotline. I'm, I'm going to see if I can make some money finding <laughs> one of those guys. Uh, yes, I'm looking for um, – anyway – um, here uh, is a great guest coming up. Pico Iyer is going to be joining us, who wrote the book called The Art of Stillness, The Joy of the Blank Space in Your Calendar. When you think about it, we're all making a great living, uh, but uh, Pico is going to teach us about the fact that you may not be making a great life. So how to create some stillness in your world and find a way to create a better life up next on The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, have you ever sympathized with an artist or a poet who hold themselves up somewhere in the woods, trying to get away from the deluge of emails, obligations, networking meetings, bus rides, tweets, you know, the constant barrage of life. Getting away from it has its appeal. And our next guest, Pico Iyer, is joining us. He is a travel journalist who has traveled the world and seen wonders from temples in Japan to beaches in Havana. So it might surprise you to discover that Mr. Iyer has recently authored a book uh, called The Art of Stillness. 
He he's actually gone though from a big corporate job to this still more um, centered life. And we've asked him to come to the show today to talk to us about how he did it, why he did it, and how some of us might achieve uh, some similar peace in our lives. Again, Pico Iyer, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Thanks, Matt. I'm really happy to be here. Honored to have you, my friend. And um, I love I love your interview that I saw with Oprah. And I want you to teach us what drove you to to search after this stillness. Well, I I don't think I have anything to teach, but I do think what I'm going through is what more and more people are going through, which is our lives are accelerating so much. We have more information coming in on us than we know what to do with. We have more and more time-saving devices, but sometimes it feels we have less and less time. Right. And even as we can make contact with people on the furthest corners of the earth, we sort of lose contact with ourselves. So I think we're caught up on this accelerating roller coaster that we never really asked to get on, and now we don't know how to get off. And um, I think all of us are suffering that one way or another. And it's probably a safe bet the world is only going to accelerate in the years to come. So if we don't gather ourselves, we're going to lose our sanity and our balance and our minds, I think. Oh, it's so true. And and it doesn't seem like, it actually seems like it's all starting even younger and younger. I used to feel like I had a very calm life. And I look <laughs> at my children's lives, I mean, and we 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 push them a lot. We take them. They play a lot of sports. They all have, you know, devices and technology. It seems like their life is speeding up even younger. It does. So actually, I have confidence in our kids because I think they're going to find naturally their own balance. I'm amazed when I talk to teenagers, how many of them say they're off Facebook or they're doing certain yeah. things because they just realize it's, it's too much for them. And, you know, I remember when I was a kid, the two exciting new toys were cars and TVs. And yeah. Most of us noticed cars were just driving us into traffic jams and TVs were making us numb. And at some point, many of our friends said, oh, you know, we can actually live happily at least some of the time without those things. So I think kids will find our balance. It's their balance. It's sometimes those of us who are in the transitional stage who kind of lose our way and lose our sense of equilibrium. Mm. And I think that's why we found this so interesting. Um, you you had a fairly typical, you know, kind of career taking off in New York had an office, 25th floor, I think. Talk to us about uh, how you got, how you went from that mentality to this new kind of stillness mentality. Well, just as you say, Matt, um, I I was uh, in my mid-20s. I had this really exciting job, as I saw it, uh, writing on World Affairs for Time magazine. And I had that apartment on Park Avenue in the 25th floor office that you mentioned. And I must say, I was enjoying every moment. But a part of me felt I was only seeing this small, tiny corner of the world. And another part thought that I was so caught up in this kind of adrenaline rush, I could never really see how happy I was, and I could never separate myself from my life. And so, yes, uh, in my 20s, I left all that dream life behind, and I moved to a single room on the back streets of Kyoto, Japan, where I didn't even have a private toilet or a private telephone or a bed. And, of course, it didn't do much for my job security, and it didn't make my parents overjoyed. But one of the things I quickly noticed was that when I was in that high-speed life in uh, Manhattan, I was always scattered and all over the place, and I, I was always thinking of the next thing I could do or the other places I could be. But as soon as I was in this single room in Japan with no telephone and no computer, I was completely absorbed in whatever I was doing. I forgot the time. I forgot myself. 
And in some ways, I thought, well, this is the definition of happiness. If I'm having a conversation with a friend, if I'm reading a book, if I'm just writing something, I am completely where I want to be. And so I've been in Japan now 28 years. I moved out of that little room, and I, I married um, a woman with two children. Uh, but the two of us have lived for more than 20 years in a two-room apartment um, where we have no TV I can understand, uh, no printer, no car, wow. no bicycle. And for me, part of the joy of that is that the day seems to stretch. Time seems to stretch. And every day when I wake up, I feel like I have 100 hours. So I can sit at my desk and write for five hours. I can play ping pong with the, um, my friends in the neighborhood. I can take two walks. I can read for an hour. And I still have time left over to take care of my emails and be in touch with my bosses. And I never had that sense when I was racing all around in, in New York City. And I think... Um, it used to be when I was a kid, the big luxury was to have a lot of space, you know, to have a big house, right. a, a big car. Now, I think for many of us, the big luxury is to have a lot of time and just to have a little empty space in your calendar, whether you're a busy uh, mom with three kids or whether you're an executive. The one thing we crave is just 30 minutes every day to catch our breath. And I think, you know, most people are doing this in one way or another, whether they're taking a run every day or going to the gym or doing yoga. But I think we realize without that small empty space, we are lost and we don't know what to do with the rest of our time. It is. And then it seems like we almost just automatically fill the space up with time. And, and we, yes. I mean, we fill it, we fill it, we fill the, our time up with all of these things. And it's like, why are we, it's so automatic. We're not even intentionally thinking that we're, that we're stuffing our lives so full. Well, what do you think that's about? Why is it we'd, we'd rather, because you're right, it was, it was space. We wanted more space in our homes. We wanted more, um, you know, square footage. We wanted more acreage. But then... We, once we got the acreage, then we started filling it up with stuff, things that we then have to take care of. And um, it's almost like we're afraid of the stillness. We're afraid of having time to think. Yeah, no, I agree. And I think we're sort of caught up in this addiction or compulsion. I mean, the big difference between now and 20 years ago is that as you and I are sitting here talking, 16 emails are coming in on you, seven voicemails, 23 tweets, and four CNN updates, and we <laughs> sort of feel we have to keep in touch with that. And the more we try to keep up, actually, the more we fall behind, as you were saying. And I think it's only by dramatically, consciously stepping away from it that we can know what to do with those tweets and how to sort out. I love the word stuffed you use because I think our lives are kind of like overstuffed rooms or desks with thousands of towers of paper and we mm. can't see what the important stuff is right now um, unless we just take a walk around the block or we do something completely different and then we remember what's the most important thing you know, take care of my mother in the hospital look after the kids whatever yeah. but uh, we're, we're racing to keep up we're like Mini Ma uh, Mickey Mouse in that old movie Fantasia yeah. where the water's coming in and he's using a pail, That's <laughs> a right. pail to try and get it out and we're chasing so really, yeah we're chasing everything aren't we we're chasing the brooms yeah, we're chasing we're, yeah. everything and, and the more we run after it the more we're, we're behind and we don't know what to do and we're getting kind of dizzy. Um, I just read that there's this new field with a great uh, uh, topic or title, which is interruption science. And they found that it takes an average person 25 minutes to recover her concentration after oh, wow. a telephone call. Yeah. But the average person nowadays gets a telephone call every 11 minutes. So by definition, we're never caught up. Um, and it's interesting, they also did a survey 
of time diaries. They asked various Americans just to keep a record of what they were doing in every hour of the day. And then they looked at those records. And they found that the average American is actually working fewer hours on the job and at home than Americans were in the 1960s, but we feel as if we're working more. And that's why mm. you know, the World Health Organization has said that stress is going to be the health epidemic of the 21st century. Um, and I think that's why one in every three American corporations now has stress reduction programs, variations of meditation or yoga, because they just realize we can't function at that pace, because I think we're almost living at a speed determined by machines, and humans were probably never meant to live like machines or at that oh, pace. It's so true. <laughs> yeah, In fact, even, even just about. talking about it, Pico, my heart rate just went up. <laughs> and let me go check my <laughs> Fitband. Yep. Oh, yeah. My heart rate's off the chart. Um, yeah, but I think we all know that. We do, don't we? Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, I, 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 I think we all know ways that we are trying to find um, to get away from it. Some people cook when they come back from the office just to yeah. kind of still themselves. A lot of people, and what's interesting to me, as you mentioned in your introduction, I've traveled a lot. And one of the biggest surprises to me is that many, many people now do sort of digital detox. They, they observe what they call an Internet Sabbath, whereby they go completely offline for a day or a weekend so that they'll be more directed and fresh when they go online again. Hmm. And one of the things that surprised me is that the people who are most interested in unplugging and sitting still are actually the people in Silicon Valley who are creating these new yeah. technologies. But they're wise enough to know, because they're making the technologies, that technology can't give us a sense of how to use the wisest um, forms of technology. In other words, a car can't teach us how to drive. That's something right. we have to do ourselves. And the Internet can't teach us how to make discerning use of the Internet. That's something we have to do offline. Oh. So I think, you know, three, three times uh, in a month uh, in February, I was in Silicon Valley, and I was watching, for example, the Google engineers do their jobs by playing beach volleyball or going for yeah, long walks right. on the hills or, or going into meditation rooms. And I think that's very wise because they know they have to get away from the machines and so they can make good use of the machines when they go back to the office. I agree. And we need that intentionality of it. Um, we're talking again with Pico Iyer, the, the author of the book, The Art of Stillness. We're going to take a break, come back, continue uh, just discussing and, and figuring out ways that each of us, uh, and in your heart, be listening. Because as you're listening to Pico, I'm sure you're sitting there thinking, oh, I need that too. I want a part of that. So by the end of this, you be ready to, to make a commitment in your own life uh, to, to create a little bit more uh, stillness, some peace, some some calmness, and de-stuff a little bit uh, your, of, of the things that are filling up your life. We'll take a break. More on stillness right here on The Matt Townsend Show on BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Have you ever felt in your life, you know, you're blessed, you've got, you seem to have it all, and you're still not at peace? You have everything but peace. You have everything but calmness in your life. Um, that's what we're talking about today with our, our great guest, Pico Iyer, is joining us. He's the author of the book, The Art of Stillness. And uh, he's he's giving us just his journey. He's telling us 
about how he went from a, a, a writing job um, at Time Magazine as a as a writer for them, as a um, I guess a, a reporter, a journalist for them, to eventually leaving it all and just simplifying his life and and trying to find a way to um, create more stillness. Eventually, it's led to this book called The Art of Stillness, and we are uh, honored to have him here again. Pico Iyer, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Thank you. Talk about your um, your definition of stillness. What? How do you describe it? I mean, you've told us many versions of it. it, it do you, have you defined it in, in any you know, terms or definition, or is it just a feeling you have? I think I, the best way of putting it would, would be creating a space in your life, by which I mean 20, 30 minutes every day where you're not obliged to do anything, and you can just let your mind run free like a dog mm. on a beach. And sometimes it'll find nothing, but even <laughs> if it finds nothing, I think the rest of your day will be a lot better. And, you know, I've got to confess to you, um, I, my wife, uh, who's Japanese, wakes up at 5 o'clock every morning and she meditates and then she does yoga and then she does tai chi. And I think those are all wonderful things, but I've been too lazy and um, <laughs> uncoordinated to do any of those. Yeah. And, you know, I am, I'm a journalist and a travel writer, but even if I can't do that formally, I find that uh, taking a walk around the neighborhood, uh, when I'm driving around town, turning off the radio and just leaving, giving myself that time to to let my my mind wander. When I'm on the treadmill in the health club, turning off the TV, just tiny things like that suddenly open up a little space in my day. And that's the time when I can breathe and I can think about my day and really come up with good decisions for the rest of the time, I feel. Yeah. It's almost like we're so driven to be efficient. So not only will I exercise, but I will also listen to books on tape while I'm exercising, while planning my schedule. And you think, so I love what you're saying too, is you don't need to have to go to meditation per se. You you don't have to do yoga. You don't have to do something. You Sometimes you can just have the free space in your brain, yes, like a dog think, wandering on the beach. Yeah, that's why um, you know companies like Google gave their employees 20% of their paid time free because they realized that the free time was actually when they would come up with the good ideas. And I'm a writer, and it's taken me a long time to find out that my best ideas come not when I'm on my desk, at my desk, poring over my notes, but actually when I'm taking a walk or playing tennis or going to the movies. And I have the space suddenly to come up with um, ideas I never would have come up with if I were just staring at a small space on a wall. And right. It's interesting. Just you know, uh, two months ago, I did a public conversation with somebody called Evan Williams, who is, in fact, one of the founders of Twitter. And what really impressed me was this guy who's brought tweets and Twitter into the world told me that he couldn't be a good father, he couldn't be a good husband, and most of all, he couldn't come up with these great ideas. He also invented the word blogger if he didn't meditate every day. And so he meditates 30 minutes, and that's, in fact, how he comes up with these creations that have changed the world. And he couldn't believe that I didn't meditate because he (laughs) said that's what he needed to be an imaginative uh, human being creating all these startups. I guess that's too. Everyone's so different. We we find uh, you're really just saying find a way that your brain and your spirit can do it. Yes. And, you know, one thing I noticed in my life was a few years ago I went for my annual checkup and my doctor said, well, you look fine, but uh, you should go to the health club for 30 minutes every day. And as soon as he did that, I signed up and I go religiously, as it were, to the health club every day. 
But if somebody were to say to me, how about the inner health club? You know, just yeah. spend 30 minutes a day being quiet in one corner of a room, unplugged, not doing anything. I would say I don't have the time. And yet that inner health club is probably more important for our health and well-being than even the, the official health That's club. That's right. And yet we disregard it, and then we wonder why we're feeling so stressed and ragged and, and confused. But I think it's, it's really it's always been an important thing in life, and now I think it's a necessity because our lives are so sped up. Well, so, it's as interesting. you said, overstuffed. Overstuffed, and I, I look at your life and I think, okay, so he comes out with a book, he gets on Oprah, he's now <laughs> doing the Twitter discussions, and... All of these things. And I think, wow, I bet his life was so much calmer before this. I mean, so now all of a sudden you release your book and it seems like it probably, you know, elevates your life in complexity for a while. Are you still able to keep that space amidst all of the the chaos of a new book or a new, you know, release or whatever? Yeah, I, you know, I, I make sure it does, and that, that, that's beautifully put, and you're right that I'm babbling a lot, a bit, you know, the last few weeks, but I always make sure to do that. So just before I came on air with you, I actually did go to the health club in mm. the, uh, the hotel where I'm staying, and I thought, well, let me just spend 30 minutes thinking about this to prepare yeah. for talking with Matt. And last night, I, I had an event here in Toronto, and it finished about 10 o'clock at night. It was a beautiful night, and I thought, instead of a taxi, why don't I walk home for 40 minutes? And that walk was the biggest luxury I enjoyed that day and so easy wow. I got you know my evening was so much nicer than if I just raced home in the taxi and turned on the TV or checked my emails or something so I think the beauty of this is it's kind of within our power and it's in at our fingertips at every moment it's just up to us occasionally to choose the slower option that will actually be making us feel happier mm. it really is powerful again we're talking with Pico Iyer who's the author of the book the art of stillness and really, I think just teaching us to to find our inner self, find that 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 spirit, that being that that really um, brings, I think, a, a whole different component to life. There was a great quote uh, that was attributed to you um, about making a great living but not making a great life. Yes. To, to, I mean, because really, we we sit there and we think we need a, we got we've got to go to college. You got to get your degree. You got to push. You you got to change the world. And yet, you could be doing great things and still not have a life. Yeah, and I think when I talk about stillness or making a space, it's partly about kind of that inner bank account that we sometimes neglect that's really important. And to give you one example, last month I was sleeping in my apartment in Japan and suddenly at five in the morning I got a call that my mother, aged 83, had just had a stroke and she'd just been uh, sent into the ICU in that local hospital. So I flew back and I, I spent 29 days by her bed in the ICU last month. And as I was sitting there, I was thinking, all the money I've earned, all the stuff on my resume, all the books I've written, none of that is going to help me at all. The only thing that's going to help me in this difficult moment is what I've gathered within, which I've probably gathered by being quiet or, as you said, by listening to that inner voice or by developing something within me um, that is going to sustain me. And all of us you know, go through difficulties in life. We suddenly lose a job or we lose a loved one. What is going to help us mm. then? All the ways we've made a living probably aren't going to help us, but the ways that we've made a life probably will, whatever we've built up within ourselves, our inner resources. And it takes um, away some of the pain or the guilt that you could have had uh, um, if with your mom if you yeah. hadn't been able to be there. And if when you got to your mom, if you still couldn't turn your phone off and you didn't have the skills to just go so still. 
Exactly. Beautifully said. That's right. So what my mother doesn't need when I'm at her bedside is for me to be twittering and tweeting and, right. and on the cell phone. And what she needs is somebody maybe to sit quietly or to talk to her or to share things. And all of those are the invisible resources that we can't really survive unless we, we try to develop. Um, and moments of crisis like that suddenly bring it home to us. But the rest of the time, I think it's easy to sleepwalk and enjoy the moments until suddenly something crashes down on you and you realize, oh, I have nothing with which to deal with it. Yeah, I don't have the resources. I love right. your term there, invisible resources. We, we, you just said the invisible yes. resources, yes. and we don't spend time – We most of us might not even know what those are. So I, I wonder if when we sit in the silence, in the stillness – if many of us, we'd get into another part of our brain where we're like, what am I doing? <laughs> I, I don't know yeah, what I'm supposed say, to do it's, now. It's, yeah, it, it's sometimes uncomfortable and it's not always good stuff that comes up. Yeah. But it's still never time that's wasted. And I was thinking recently, nearly everybody has fallen in love. And when we fall in love with somebody... It's not, I hope, for their external resources. It's not for their business card or their bank balance. We're falling in love with them. It's for something inside that yeah. has to do with depth or a sense of fun or clarity or calm or all those inner things. That's what's that's mm. really compelling us in other people, and that's what we should be developing in ourselves. And I think we all do, but sometimes we get lost in the excitement of the moment and then suddenly end up kind of bankrupt with yeah. Yeah, it's it's beautiful because um, a lot of times when someone hears your message, they would think it's just good for you. But mm. what I'm hearing though is it's it was also it was it strengthened your ability to be with your mother when you needed to be there, and I'm assuming it's good for you uh, with your wife and her children. I mean, talk about how it's impacted even your marriage. This concept of stillness. Yeah, thank you. Well, you know, one thing I started doing many years ago is every season I go for three days on retreat to a monastery um, on the coast of California. And every time I go, a part of me does feel guilty. You know, yeah. why am I driving away from my wife and my mother? Why am I missing my friend's birthday party? Why am I missing out all these exciting things? And as soon as I go there, I realize that it's only by going there that I have creative, fresh uh, joy to share with my wife and my bosses and my mother, because otherwise mm. I'm just giving them my voice, you know, my exhaustion and distractedness yeah. and saying, you know, shouting out, oh, I'll be with you in a minute, or sorry, I just got to take care of this email. But by taking a deep breath, then when I come down, they can back into the world. My wife or my mother can see in my face that um, I'm, I'm happy and I'm alive and I'm desperate to share all these new discoveries with them. And the same with, with them. If my wife were to say, I want to go off and spend five days doing yoga, I'd say, please, because you will be so much happier when you come back, and right. I, will, I will gain from it, and your kids will gain from it. And, you know, sometimes the kids are a good example because their needs are so immediate, we feel we have to be tending to them. But sometimes when we're tending to them, we're just getting angry and frustrated with them because we're too exhausted. Mm. And so even if you ask somebody, you know, for 20 minutes, could you look after my kids? I'm just going to take a walk around the neighborhood. I think when you come back, your kids will be much happier because you're giving them love and clarity instead of just <laughs> yeah. emotions. Well, yeah, and, 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 you know, the drudgery of life. <laughs> and it's, yeah, it's almost like we just sit there and, okay, life is just mutual exhaustion. And we just <laughs> slowly suck the life out of each other. But you're saying take some time, create stillness. In the stillness, fill up that inner vessel and then you can bring that inner vessel back and pour that that life, that inspiration back into others. And they can pour theirs yeah. back into us. 
Exactly. I mean, I think it's almost about falling in love with the world again. And as you say, we get caught up in the cycle of drudgery and we forget why we're so happy to be alive. And we need to remember that. And once we do, we have so much more to give everybody. Mm. And we know that if, if we're close to somebody and they've lost their love of life, we, want, we tell them, you know, go and take a hike for a week or do something you really enjoy and then you'll be so much happier for everybody yeah. around you. I mean, it, really, Pico, it's a beautiful—you bring a beautiful spirit and a beautiful lesson, even though you don't, you're not the teacher, but we all are. But, um, and, and the idea that you could have been caught with this spirit and just stayed in kind of the, the New York journalist mentality, it's tragedy, isn't it? That, that we get stuck in that and we then would have lost—you would have lost yourself. And, but there's yeah. people that spend their entire lives doing that. Whatever yes, the job. And I, I realize now that the one thing I'm glad of is, as I said, I was really enjoying that life. And yeah. I think it's often good to make a change when you're very happy, not just when a sudden crisis comes. Yeah. So I was enjoying every aspect of that life. And the part of me said, well, I've enjoyed this. Let me do something totally different. Uh-huh. So I wasn't making a move out of despair. I was making a move out of enthusiasm and a sense of exploration. And I think I'm glad of that. Yeah. But uh, I only have fond memories of my life in New York. Um, but I also have wonderful, grateful memories for the life I moved onto and into. Well, and th- that that other life also gave you skills and tools that that enables your current life as well. So exactly, they're That's they're mutually exactly right, yeah. yeah they're mutually beneficial. Yes, they're mutually exclusive. It's kind of like breathing in or breathing out. And as mm. a writer, any writer spends kind of half his life out in the world, really enjoying the world and the emotion and the energy and excitement, and then half his life sitting very still at his desk, uh, making sense of everything. And I sometimes think that travel um, has given me the kind of, it's decorated the house of my life, but stillness is what has really laid the foundations. Um, And we Mm. need both of them, as you say. If if you were still all the time, it'd be good for your soul, but you wouldn't be giving back to the world very much. That's right. One needs that back and forth, I think. The exp- yeah, the, the, I love the breathing in, breathing out. Talk, uh, give us w- w- one more idea. We have about one more minute, but I'd love to just hear what would Pico say to the rest of us? What's the one thing, Pico, if we could just focus on one thing that you sense would be the fastest maybe path to stillness, what's that one thing we should all strive to do? Well, it sounds silly or too simple, but I would say take a breath and take a break. Uh, 20 minutes a day. Or if that sounds too formidable, start with five minutes. Give yourself a break for five minutes a day. Do nothing. And I think that nothing is going to help you do everything else in yeah. the rest of the day. But um, just try to unplug or take, you know, take a walk around the block. And uh, that time will never be wasted, I think. No, I think that's beautiful. Take a breath, take a break. Pico Iyer, we appreciate you, my friend. Keep up the great, uh, the great work, the great just experiencing of life and sharing it. Uh, everybody, go get that book, uh, The Art of Stillness, and um, and start to take a break. Five minutes, 15 minutes a day, whatever you got. Take a breath, take a break. <sighs> really? I mean, it's I, I do believe it's that simple, and yet we complicate it. And I think some of our complication is, you know, because we're afraid of what we might end up seeing. Wonderful stuff. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We're going to take a break and a breath while we're at it. We'll be right back. More uh, from the Coach's Corner on Stillness right here on the Matt Townsend Show.
Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Ah, I love Pico Iyer. That was an awesome interview. And um, really, the art of stillness, it's something we don't, we just don't do. And you know what else I, I really liked about his, Pico in general is he's just, he's really approachable. He's, uh, one of the things he, he didn't tell is a story that he was in um, Japan on business and while he was there, he just saw such a different world, and he and he be, he was called. He basically felt like he was called. He saw these temples, he saw um, little wooden homes, all of these incredible things. He wanted to to make a part of his life. So he really he went to New York, quit, did did all these things, and within a week, I believe, he was back, um, or relatively quickly, he was back to Japan. Now, when he got to Japan, he decided he's just going to go join a monastery. So he went to a temple, joined a monastery, and you're like, oh, wow, what a guy, Pico. And then a week later, he quit. He's like, I'm out of here. (laughs) These people, all they do is they do a lot of cleaning. And he didn't realize how much cleaning was involved in, you know, monastic (laughs) commitments. And so he moved about a block or two away from the monastery in this small little place apartment and that's where he he started his life and then ended up creating and finding his wife and her children and then ended up creating again a fairly monastic life he felt um, but was able to offer more of himself um, than just instead of just the cleaning so anyway powerful thing and where I you know a lot of people aren't prone to go you know to a monastery or aren't prone to go do meditation or whatever yoga But let me just suggest where you might want to create some stillness is in some conversations in your life. What if we could just be more still and um, in in listening and in hearing what people are saying? What if we just allowed more space in our talk, our conversations, so that everything wasn't always about – you know, me needing to compete, me needing to run away, me needing to argue, me needing to entertain you. So try just with your family, with your kids, with your spouse, creating, um, just creating peace, creating a space. Because I, I feel strongly that we need, we need to learn to just be still in our thoughts and allow um, other people to influence us more. We are so into trying to convince and convert everyone to our specific way of thinking that we sometimes don't even allow that spirit to come in. And that, that spirit, by the way, is is the definition of inspiration is where the spirit is inside, is coming from within. And if you truly want to inspire somebody, sometimes the best way to do that is to just shut your flapper. <laughs> Not to be rude, but shut your mouth and allow... Your words allow your just sensitivity, allow your emotion, allow the peace to do the talking. And sometimes you'll find out it's a much better communicator than you ever will be. Uh, Have you ever heard the quote that says, who you are speaks so loudly, I can't hear the words you're saying. So maybe the stillness that Pico is trying to teach us can come from just being the person that we need to be and and being the person we need to be in the way we need to be it, in the space we need to be it, at the right time we need to be it. It's, it's, that's the convergence, I think, of spirituality, where all of a sudden everything we are in the right moment, at the right time, 
it can converge and we're an open, you know, vessel, willing to be and do what we need to be and do in any space. I know that sounds all foo-foo-y, but the reality is think about your greatest moments. The One of the greatest moments of my life where I felt that spirit the most and stillness the most would be a baby being born. And it's pretty chaotic, right? Then there's that peace, that stillness when everyone goes quiet and the baby's there and all you do is you just hold your baby. And that, ah, now you can breathe. And then you obviously you've got to count the fingers and the toes because you don't, you know, you got to make sure you got everything. But the peace is there. And so I think in our lives, we'll, we'll feel that a lot more. I also think that peace, I think I'm, I believe in God and I think he wants you to feel peace. And interestingly, nothing seems to kind of create more, you know, almost anti-God than just complete chaos and overwhelming um, just confusion. So turn some things off. Test it. Test Pico's advice today. Test it. I dare you. Just create space. Could you dare do 15 minutes? What if you just in your marriages committed to listening to each other for 15 minutes a night? Oh, really? Oh, jeez. I mean, I love her, but don't make me listen to her for 15 minutes. Come on! You're not going to get to find out who she really is if you never listen. And if you're going to try to, you know, influence your partner to listen, you might want to make sure that when you're talking, it's not always negative or it's not always, you know, complaining or whatever. We've all got something to do. So ask yourself, where are you going to go implement the lessons of Pico Iyer? Also forgot to tell you, his website is Pico, P-I-C-O, Iyer, E, oh, this is going to be hard, Pico Iyer Journeys.com, P-I-C-O-I-Y-E-R Journeys.com, Pico I-Y-E-R dot Journeys.com, Pico Iyer Journeys.com. Thanks for joining us, folks. Hour number two. It's in the books. We're going to take a break, come back, do some headlines, and take off on our next topic. This is the Matt Townsend Show right here on BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. I'm your host, Dr. Matt Townsend, your coach, your guide on the side. Welcome to the program. This is the show where we give you, uh, you know, the tools you need in life, the toolbox for life, because none of us, you know, were born with all the answers. So we try to go out and find dozens of people a day that we can throw their ideas by you. Dozens? Yeah. You do 12 news stories, just you. Then we bring on guests and experts. We always have a hero of the day. We'll even get a talk to BYU Sports Nation. Come on! We're giving you all the tools. I'm not saying they're tools. I'm not saying they're tools. That could have been very rude. I know. Good thing you qualified. I fixed it. Welcome to the program. Uh, hour number three, by the way. And uh, today, of course, 
Got a great uh, topic coming up. When you think about it, um, everybody, you know, everybody's had challenges. Everybody's had to overcome something. So we're going to be bringing on a great guest. Abby Stevens will be joining us. Was involved in a crash. Seriously messed up her life for a while and was in the hospital and has learned to walk again and is walking. She's going to come back and talk about overcoming challenges. We'll be talking to her in just a few minutes. Speaking of challenges, in the room, Michael Pond. Hi. All right. Were you trying to decide who to attach that comment to? Ben's hanging out. Speaking of challenges. Ben's in the box. Poor Ben. We keep him in an enclosed box. He's okay. Soundproof box. So even if he was dying in there, no one would know. I check on him every once in a while. Yeah. Yeah. Do you water him? Make sure you're watering back. Signs of life type of thing. I'd give him some I poke crackers. Him. Are you okay? You poke him. <laughs> you have to wake him up. Ben's tweeting for us right now. That's uh, Michael, you're holding down the fort. You're handling the board very well today. Barely. You're doing great. Oh, thanks. I mean, we haven't had any major issues. No one's died. No, no one's javelin died. accidents. Yeah, by the way, have you ever heard about the javelin accident? Mike Pond was on scholarship here at BYU. Well, As a decathlete. Well, almost was on scholarship. Yeah. He was earning it. He was working his way up. Mm. Soon to be a, the top decathlete. And then one javelin got away from him. Over. Ruined I, my life and, and a few others. And, oh, wow. And seven others. Wow. <laughs> That's why you never sit too close yeah. on a bench at a javelin act, at a javelin. Competition. Keep your head on a swivel. <laughs> Spread out. That's my that's my advice. Make Whenever yourself, I go to a javelin. Make yourself a small target, yes. <laughs> when you go to a javelin event, always spread out. Small target. <laughs> Stand sideways. Stand the thin way. Oh, that's sad. Everyone thinks you really did stick someone with a javelin, but we know that's not true. Maybe. Ish. They they stuck themselves. We're not allowed to. Yeah, talk legally about the we can't talk yeah. about it. Uh, there are still yeah. seven suits pending. Ongoing litigation. Uh, yada yada yada. That's all we'll say about that. Attorneys. <laughs> oh, it's so funny. Uh, not really. Anyway, um, got a great show coming up. Any headlines? Anything in the news? Anything going on? New this morning, a federal appeals court found that the National Security Agency's bulk collection of Americans' telephone metadata is not authorized by the law. What? In a decision announced today, the Second Circuit Court ruled that the program revealed by Edward Snowden exceeds what Congress authorized in the Patriot Act. The court did not stop the program, though, saying that Congress is already debating reauthorizing the Patriot Act. So they've overstepped yes. the law. They're they're aggregating more info than they're supposed to. This is correct. And Congress is just they're they're not going to amend it. They're not going to fix that. They're just going to just re- reinstate it as is. It's what it sounds like. Wow. So Ed- Edward Snowden was right. Yes. Wow. Wow. So they know everything. So the court says they overstepped and they, they've exceeded what Congress authorized in the Patriot Act, but they didn't stop it because Congress is going to reauthorize the Patriot Act. Interesting. So. Wow. There's one. I mean, it's scary what they know now. Yeah. They know I mean, everything. They know everything behind the Javelin incident. I was listening to an interview yesterday. The person on the interview 
Yeah. Someone in a position in the technology-related industry, and he's un- working under the assumption that everything is known. Really? Because you don't know. Do you know what Ben does in that little box behind you? I don't, but maybe the NSA does. We need to keep a camera on him. <laughs> he looks shifty. I can't tell if it's shifty or he just needs oxygen. You, when you go out after this, go open the door for him. Okay. I'm, I'm worried about him. Tesla. Yeah, never met her, but she they sounds make, fantastic. They make the uh, the, cow, the, car the cars. T- I just the... had one pass me the other day. They're gorgeous cars. Seriously. They'll be really quiet. I didn't even hear it. Yeah. Yes, they just it almost killed sales me. Sales right by it. Yeah. Tesla Fast. last week introduced what Tesla Energy, a suite of batteries that can power homes, businesses, and public utilities. Wow. The system consists of, uh, it's called the Powerwall, which is a rechargeable lithium-ion battery system designed to store solar power and enable homes to go completely off the power grid. Cool. As so w- solar power fills up the batteries with energy and boom. Yes. That's cool. And the idea is he's uh, – uh, Elon Musk is mm-hmm. the guy that's in, is the owner of this, yeah. dreaming all this stuff up. His idea is that we have this superpower battery in space. All this energy is being wasted just as sunshine. Right. So why don't we set up uh, these power batteries to collect this energy? So he wants a it, second sun. Yeah. So it, it wouldn't make us completely off – of of traditional ways of generating power that we have now, but it would help to supplement it and then someday make it so that we have these clean sources of energy, the sun. Wow. He's trying to make it usable. At the moment, it's not necessarily going to power your life off this battery, no, but, but it can help supplement. But look at how look at how Elon thinks. Like that's out of here. That's yes. out of So put a great big receptacle of energy and a battery up in the sky yeah in well, we, orbit we have it yeah and so the power battery is would yeah, power your house brilliant. and you could and it's and in the early the stages do its job and as it develops it could become a something that could cool. uh, become a replacement for the power grid that we have today um the devices have gone on sale hmm. or at least pre-order and they said the device uh, the uh it says here They'll be available later this year. They've reported that it's sold out so far. The new product uh, it's sold out through mid-2016, receiving more than 38,000 reservations for the device. And this, he just announced it last week. Yeah. They put it on sale recently. It's gone. He, he's going to crack the battery code. Right? I hope so. Because once he does, that changes everything. Yeah. It, it changes, makes things more affordable. They will be living in the battery down. age. Um, and the... Uh, the story that made me laugh yesterday. What? Jeff Waters. Uh-huh. Gentleman walked into a Florida bank Monday morning and mm. attempted to cash a check for $368 billion. <laughs> the check Waters had written to cash was reportedly from a bank in Idaho and issued in the 90s. So it was an old check, but it was blank. Tellers at the Jacksonville Bank were immediately suspicious. Waters <laughs> explained to the bank officials that a homeless man named Tito Watts sold him the blank check several months ago for $100. Hey, Tito said this is going to be fine. And told Waters the check would clear for any amount of money that he <laughs> wanted to write it for. Jeffrey Waters. Waters wanted the $368 billion to start an 80 million square foot underwater Italian restaurant hmm. able to accommodate 30 million customers at once. Uh, how, how would you would you like any cash back? Um, how do you want me? To would give you like your that money? small bills or fives and tens? How are we I'll looking? take it in ones. Waters was arrested for attempted bank fraud. 
Waters has got bigger problems than bank fraud. Yeah, he's got probably there's some substances. Uh, I would How's assume he fit I don't 30 know. million people in his restaurant. That's the other question. How big is? I mean, 80 million square feet. Well, but it is underground. But it's underground, so you can. I mean, you got a lot of. You, you can get 80 million square feet underground. A lot of possibilities. Easily. You just start digging. <laughs> that was. Uh, Holy cow. What's three, his name? Jeremy? His name's Jeff Waters. Jeff Waters. And his $368 billion check. So what's the difference between Elon Musk and Jeff Waters? Um, uh, one of them actually is a billionaire. Yes. And one of them just wants to be because Tito said he could. Tried really hard at a bank. <laughs> so I bought this off of Tito. What was the guy's name? Was it Tito, Tito for real? Tito Watts. Tito, the, Tito says the guy that, that had uh, the check. <laughs> he says I could write it for any amount. I just love that the guy had the actual name of the guy and just all these details. You know what else is funny is that he paid 100 bucks for the check. It was $100 for the, the check that he was trying to get. I bet he could have got away with it with, I don't know, if he had just gone for 300000 Really? You don't think that would have? <laughs> it just wouldn't pay for the underground restaurant. Okay, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the guy's a big dreamer. Both of them are big dreamers. Maybe an underground food truck? Yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. That's great. Okay, I need to have that. That right there. You just made the BYU Sports Nation. Uh, that's what we're going to read for them. Because they – oh, and you didn't even mention it. Hamburglar. Yes, the Hamburglar's back at McDonald's. He's back. Except being instead of a cartoonish type figure, it's actually a guy in a mask. Can, is now the time we need to bring more criminals back? Apparently there's a backstory that he had retired to the suburbs, had a family, and now, you know, he's coming back out of retirement to continue his hamburglar ways. Whatever those were, I can't remember. <laughs> well, that means was, you need the sheriff. Well, there was, what was that, Sheriff McCheese? Yeah, McCheese. And there Mayor was McCheese. Mayor Mc, or was Mayor McCheese, and then there was a sheriff. I can't remember his name. Hamburglar was the thief, yeah. And then there was Grimace. He was... Possibly a shake. I'm not sure. Well, he would shake when the he The Fry walked, Guys. If you know what I'm saying. They were little. Uh, yeah. <laughs> the Fry Guys. Oh, interesting. See, McDonald's, they're back. They're bringing it back. One, you know, one little criminal at a time, I guess, and a mayor and a sheriff. Ah, good stuff. We're going to take a break. When we come back, uh, prepared to be inspired and to figure out how to overcome the difficult times of life. Abby Stevens will be joining us. She's a speaker and um, just a wonderful person who is going to teach us how she and others can move from tragedy into uh, hope and a life of health again. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. So if you were given a prognosis telling you that you would never walk again, never have a family, you'd probably die in the next few years due to medical complications, what would you do? Would you start on your bucket list? Would you say your last farewells? Enjoy your last moments with the people you love? Or would you challenge the prognosis? Abby Stevens was given this prognosis after a devastating crash, but she took the, the this uh, challenge... And today, walks and gives motivational talks and uh, has children, uh, married, all of these things, folks, um, yet was told that uh, she was uh, 
a quadriplegic. Wouldn't be able to do any of this. We're honored to have her. Uh, Abby Stevens, from, uh, go to her website also, abbystevens.net. Abby, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Thank you, Matt. Honored to have here. you. This is, it's, you. it's such a great story. And on the show, I always want people to be able to find the good in the world. Um, tell us about your story. Uh, you, you ended up breaking your, your neck in an accident. Yes. Go for it. Teach us. Okay. Yeah, we, uh, we were a week away from our wedding, one week from oh, wow. our amazing day. And we were just headed to the little town in Wyoming where I'm from, which is Cokeville, by the way, and that's been all over the news. But yeah, um, we were just headed up there and, and just on a little, not very heavily traveled highway there on the way up. And, and you know, up, up to this point, we had been very careful. I'd had kind of a little, I guess you'd call premonition in my life that that something was could happen to me before I got married. And, you know, what do you do with that yeah, really. information? Just strap yourself down and not go anywhere, you know? So, so I just decided that, you know, I just needed to be extra careful. We needed to not take risks and be safe and obey laws. And so we always, always wear our seatbelts. And for whatever reason, and I just, I believe there's a reason for everything, but for whatever reason, we didn't wear our seatbelts that day. And I was also reclined all the way back in my seat. I was asleep. And uh, right there, my fiancé then, now my husband, Cole, he he looked down at me for just a minute and um, just veered off the road just a little bit. And he overcorrected. It woke me up. I remember grabbing his arm and yelling, watch out. And I thought there was a car coming. He overcorrected again, and we rolled. We just rolled off the side of the road. and. We only rolled one time. We didn't. It didn't involve any other cars. Um, but we rolled, and and he was fine. And it, it kind of took him a minute to to figure out that I wasn't where I used to be sitting. And uh, there was a big cloud of dust there off the side of the road. And I took me a minute to come to, and I I was. My feet were in the seat where I used to be, but I was laid kind of between the bucket seats there, and my head was in the back seat. Mm. And uh, just almost as if I'd been kind of picked up and laid down. And um, I just remember looking at my feet and trying to move them, and I couldn't, and I couldn't feel them. And I was very confused, obviously. I'd just been asleep, you know, and you've been rudely awakened from from a dead sleep, but... He came around to the back door and um, he just held on to my head. And I, I, one of the most distinct memories I have, because a lot of that's very bits and pieces for sure, me, sure. but, uh, is really truly being confused and wondering if I was still asleep and having a really bad nightmare. And I said to him, is this a dream? And and he said, no, this is real. And and I said, then pray. So hmm. that's how it all started. Wow. And of course, you know, 1996, now not everybody had a cell phone in their pocket. And, yeah, right. And they actually didn't fit in your pocket. It was the the time of the brick. <laughs> that's cell phone, right. right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you had to carry that in a backpack. Right. 
and and so we didn't have one, but it it, it just so happened, and and I don't believe necessarily in coincidence, but you know things that happen yeah. for a reason. And even though there weren't very many cars going by right then, the one that came upon us uh, behind us happened to have one, and they called for help. And oh, wow, yeah. Um, so yeah. they they called for help. They they got you know help arrived about fifteen to twenty minutes. Um. And then they realized how bad it was. They called for the life flight from the, the University of Utah. And then you flew from Wyoming to the University of Utah. How long were you in the hospital? I was in the hospital a total of three months. Wow. Um, I was in critical care for about two weeks. And you had broken um, your neck. You had severed. You had broken your spinal cord. Yes. Severed it. Severed is what they said. Well, they they term spinal cord injuries by complete and incomplete. Uh, complete being um, obviously more dramatic, traumatic. And yeah. It's either severed or damaged beyond repair. Um, and that's what they said. They gave that prognosis to my family. And, and I don't really even remember the moment that they told me that. Um, but it never, I guess I was in denial, mm-hmm. but it never sunk in that that would be real, that that was my reality, that that was the way I'd be. That you were going to be a quadriplegic. That you're like, nah, that never settled in. You never right. believed nope. that. No, I, in fact, I, I just ne- I told them, no, well, for a while I, I couldn't talk. They had intubated, yeah. you know, yeah. the tubes down. Ventilator, like yeah. And then once they did move that to the trach in my neck and I could at least mouth the words, I I made sure every time those groups, you know, of doctors, the teaching hospital, came in and would do different tests and talk about things, I just made sure that they looked me in the eye and I caught their eye and I would mouth the words, I will walk. That's so and cool. Of, of course, they'd all kind of shrug and yeah. their eyes. And, mm-hmm. She doesn't understand, right? Right, right. She doesn't know how really serious <laughs> this is. And maybe I didn't, and maybe that was... Maybe that's helpful, thing. huh? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Did did um, you... Uh, you got the di- the diagnosis. You're in the hospital for three months. There, there's a video on your website that I suggest everybody go go watch. It's it's pretty incredible at, at abbystevens.net of you coming home. I mean, it is, you walked with a special walker, but you walked out of the hospital. Yes, I did. I mean, it's amazing. And your husband, Cole, is, is Cole is his name? Cole, Cole, yeah. He's right there. I mean, he, and he, you guys look like a bunch of young (laughs) kids in their, I don't know. It was, it's just super powerful. He's with you. This guy is still with you. Yes, he did not miss a single day. He came to that hospital every day for three months, hmm. every day. That's so cool. That really yeah. is, Abby. I mean, because, you know, the odds of even making it through that together as a couple, let alone the last 17 years, and you, ha- and you have kids now, too. Yes. Yep. We're, we're going on, let's see, 18 years this month on May 22nd is when we finally got married. And we... <laughs> We do. We have four kids, and ironically, well, when you watch those videos, you'll see, but my, my right side didn't come back quite as, as normal as the left, so I don't have use of my right arm, Yeah. and 
I walk with a bit of a limp and I don't have very good balance. But yeah, we have four kids and I, with that one arm, ironically enough, we had twins too. So <laughs> I mean, that's like having eight kids. Yeah, yeah, it's and it is. It multiplies exponentially. It does. So. Because especially with one arm, it's like it's a lot harder. Abby, let's take a break. I want to come back and have you just teach us, give us some ideas for what made the difference, uh, some of the key points for what makes the difference to get through a tragedy like this and to turn it into something. I mean, it's your life. This is what this was your life. It's not like you get to choose everything. So Abby's going to teach us. Abby Stevens from AbbyStevens.net. Just a great uh piece of light, I think, on this earth, helping us understand that, you know, you can find a life after tragedy. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on BYU Radio. back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. On the phone with us is uh, just an incredible example of um, of just believing and putting your head down and working. Abby Stevens joins us from the website abbystevens.net. Uh, about 17 years ago, 18 years ago, she um, ended up in a car accident, broke her neck, uh, severed her spine, she was told, and... Um, Ended up three months later walking out of the uh, the hospital and didn't necessarily walk out, you know, like she would have walked in, but she um, she's been she's been a champion, a true hero. Abby, welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. Thanks. I, I saw the picture at your wedding. So about an hour, a year after your you, your accident, you ended up getting married. Is that right? Yes, and then eleven there, months in a day. Exactly, you know exactly. And <laughs> you were standing; it was the most beautiful picture. Standing with everybody at the wedding, and your husband, who was uh, the driver of the of the car when you guys rolled and crashed, uh, and then you ended up getting married a year later. And you're standing at your wedding. I'm assuming you had a dance at your wedding as well. Uh, no, we didn't. But <laughs> but I did my goal my whole life or my dream for my wedding, was that I would sing. Oh. I, I, I was a singer. I was a musical theater girl. I yeah. always loved to perform. Um, I obviously don't dance like I used to, but I still dance better than my husband because he has no <laughs> rhythm. But uh, my, my dream was to sing at my wedding, and my, my voice was, was heavily affected yeah. from being intubated and and then you know loss of lungs lung capacity and those muscles that help you sing and so I did sing at my wedding and it, it wasn't great but I did it oh, anyway I bet it was fantastic that was my dream so talk about yeah. how you've what have you done four children now um, how do you how do you manage life how did you what did you do to kind of come back from this what are some of the principles that you've been living. Well, first and foremost, I have a really strong faith in God. I I believe in miracles. I, you know, have a really deep-rooted faith and hope in in 
you know, joy. I, I know, I believe God wants us to be happy and and find joy while we're here. And 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 I really think, I, well, I believe, I know that all these little things that that we're given to go through these trials, these challenges, these difficulties, are really for our betterment mm. to help us become stronger and and more just better people and and so that you know that's the basis of you know where I get my my drive my determination just knowing that it was for a reason and and I I guess my mom I was kind of one of those those kids that pushed things a little bit very (laughs) determined very stubborn and gave my parents all their gray hair, but uh, there was there was a point, you know, when things were were progressing, and my mom made the comment that she was sure glad that my determination was being channeled into this positive direction and, and getting me better. Yeah. So, you know, so I, I don't, I don't take all the credit for where I am. Obviously, I, I believe in miracles. I, I believe I was, I was healed. If, you know, if the prognosis, as they say, if the the damage was beyond repair, I should not be yeah out of a wheelchair and and, and yeah and and walking and raising and four kids and raising four kids yeah so you know that's that's the basis and then just everyday life I I really <laughs> I'm human we all are and yeah. we have those human emotions ups and downs and there are days that I get frustrated and. And, you know, really want to break out of this kind of, sometimes this body feels a little confining and holding me back, but it's definitely, it's better than where I should have or could have been. Mm-hmm. And so that's, that's the, the message I try to share with people. Yes, things are hard and rough, but if we can find the positive in every situation, it, that is the greatest, greatest tool that I've found if, you know, and it's okay to kind of get in your little slump and cry or feel angry or whatever it is you want to feel. But if you can get out of that, you know, have your little pity party for a minute. Yeah. And then you got to move on because if you dwell there, you know, set up camp, <laughs> hang out there. Yeah. Yeah. You, you're, you're not moving on, are you? Right. You're just going down. And so. Is that what you speak about? Because you go out now, and I mean, that's got to be part of it, too, is having this message and serving others with your message turns it into something different than just a tragedy. It's actually, it's a a pretty powerful change story. Yes, it is. And that is part of my message. You know, I talk a lot about positive attitude and dealing with change. You know, a lot of people just can't even handle change, and they... They want to just hang on and stay where they are and not move on and yeah. not progress. I talk about you know finding finding ways, being being grateful, looking at the positive, find the beauty and whatever it is. And there's you know some people just are I guess naturally born pessimists. Some of us are naturally optimistic, uh, but it's a choice. I I really believe that it's a choice. Yeah. We don't, we don't get to choose what happens to us, but we really can choose how we deal with it. And It's so know, powerful. It really that, is. You know, and that's something, that's something they don't learn, I guess, until 
you're forced to be you're forced into that position, then you've got to really get that belief in your head, don't you? Yeah, yeah, and it is. It's a it's a mindset. I I do speak a lot about that. That you know you get you got to you got to change your mind. You got to change your way of thinking about things and what the way you view yourself, your life, your circumstances. Yeah. Um, it, it is a choice, and and I honestly believe that. And you know, I I I still have bad days, and I sure. you know can throw a little fit as well as the next person. But <laughs> well, but, good. You, you know, should. That's, that's, yeah, I, I mean, have a right. You have a right for heaven's sake. <laughs> Give us. We have about thirty seconds left, Abby. What? What should just somebody out there that's listening, that's experiencing a trial or a tragedy in their life? What? What's the? What's the one thing that you say of all the things that got you through yours? What? What made the biggest difference? Um, you know. The- the biggest difference for me, and I realize not everybody has this in their life, but is the support system. My family, my friends, I mean, both sides, you know, my, my husband's family, my family, we had such a, I had such a big support system of people praying for me and being there constantly visiting me in the hospital. And then from, from then all of these years, these whole, almost 19 years of people being there and supporting and loving and serving and and just and then looking mostly looking for the positive being grateful for what you have not focusing oh. on what you don't have I love but, that positive relationships and your faith um, yeah. it's it's powerful Abby Stevens you are a hero a true hero I'm holding you up as one of my heroes. Uh, go to the website, find out, and you got to watch her videos and just listen to her speak. She really is beautiful in um, every way. Her spirit is immense. AbbyStevens.net is the website. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be back with BYU Sports Nation. Find out what's going on uh, on their show a little bit later. We'll be back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. I can't stop this feeling deep inside of me. Girl, you just don't realize what you do to me. Welcome back, everybody. Mm, this is some good music. We're tossing it down to BYU Sports Nation in Studio B. This is my anthem for you two. Why did you pick this song? Because I'm hooked on a feeling, and every time I talk to you guys, I get that feeling back. What is that feeling? It's that <laughs> It's that loving feeling. <laughs> but you've lost. I've lost that loving feeling. feeling. You know what? Isn't that a great song? Yes. Did you guys tap your toes? I was not. I was bobbing my head. Were you? I can't. Yeah. They don't have the video on today. Jerem can't bob his head because his top button is all the way up. <laughs> his head will bob right off. <laughs> Don't bob too like hard, Jerem. Like a dandelion. <laughs> I'm Wilford Brimley for Quaker Oats. You guys, this is my favorite five minutes of my show. Of life? Not of oh, life. Oh, no, 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 sure. no, 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 no. It's okay. actually my favorite. It's my favorite five minutes of this half hour. Oh, nice. I mean, you guys are great. Don't get me wrong. But, let's, ex- let's extra qualify that. Let's super extra qualify. Hey, okay, I've got a story. 
that, okay. again, every day we do a bunch of stories, and then one of them reminds me of you guys. <laughs> oh. I always cringe at this moment. This is the best moment. So did you hear about the man? No. Who tried to cash a check worth $368 billion? <laughs> <laughs> okay. No, so wrote I did his not. own check. But so here we go. Jeff Waters walked into a Florida bank Monday morning and attempted to cash a check for $368 billion. <laughs> the, <laughs> the check Waters had written, uh, <laughs> he wrote it to cash, <laughs> was reportedly from a bank in Idaho and was issued in the <laughs> 90s. And the tellers at the Jacksonville Bank were immediately suspicious. <laughs> I wonder yeah. what tipped them off. I think hmm. it was the cash idea. Um, why isn't he depositing it? Waters explained to the bank officials a homeless man named Tito Watts <laughs> sold him the blank check several months ago for $100 and told Waters the check would clear for any amount of money. Whatever he wanted to write it for, it would clear. And Waters, wow. and guess what, though? He wanted to write the $368 billion check so that he could start an 80 million square foot underwater Italian restaurant. Oh, man. Which you know, there's not a lot of. I mean, there's a whole there's a market, market for it. And uh, anyway, it would have accommodated this is the cool thing. He's a giver. It would have accommodated 30 million uh, eaters uh, in the eatery at once. Because that's what it's about. Yeah. Giving give, back give, give. to the people. That's he wasn't going to keep the money. About. $368 and I, and I I don't know who it was. I was trying to figure out which one of you in my mind reminded me of Jeff Watts and which one reminded me of uh, Tito – Tito or Jeff Waters and which one reminded me of Tito Watts. Oh, I'd be – this is a modern-day Jack and the Beanstalk story. Exactly. There's a giant in the sky. Unfortunately. <laughs> hey, in Jack and the in Jack and the Beanstalk, did Jack get the beans from Tito? Probably. Yeah, I bet. I got it from James Corden. Some guy on the street. It was yeah, that was that was the equivalent of Tito in that story. That's exactly right. So you guys, I, see what I bring you? I bring you stories that change your life. <laughs> I'm not sure where to go now. See I the know. good in the world. I'd love to see what your show's about. Because I bet you you didn't bring this up. I'm trying really hard to tie in Jack and the Beanstalk somehow to what we're talking about on BYU Sports Nation or, today, but I'm coming up empty. Tito and is there a Jack somewhere? Maybe I'm coming a John? up empty. Hey, maybe maybe the Tito <laughs> Tito Tito is selling to BYU fans blue goggles that uh, tell them that BYU is going 13 and 0 and winning the national championship in 2015. You don't believe That's that? The 368 billion dollar question. <laughs> There we go. We did it. We you pulled it. it together. Way to tie it in, boys. See, that yeah. shows your professionals. Now, it, it was a week ago today that BYU released the official 2015 football schedule. Right. Tom Tuff's, Homo in studio. Tough schedule, of course. Okay. What other show? So, so Tom's in studio. And uh, Jeremy and I are looking really closely at the schedule. And, and we, we had the question come up, how many surefire wins will BYU football have on this schedule? Mm. Now take a closer look. I'm talking like 100%. Out of 13. No bones about it. I am absolutely positive BYU will win these type of games. Uh, I bet. I'm going to say three out of 13. You're not far off. Well, well out of 12. We don't, we don't oh, yeah. know who okay. the ball opponent is. Okay. You're not far off from what many people are predicting. Okay. Really? That, that, are, that are guaranteed. I mean, kind of sure bets. Like guaranteed. But yeah, see, we, so, we each have a number, and it's a different number. I'm going all in. All, all chips are in. And today you're going to tell us what you think? Yeah. Yes, and <laughs> why that number is maybe lower than normal. Really? Why? Oh. Ooh. 
Yeah. Do you have yeah, any? Do you have any other information you're going to throw out? Oh, it's just. Do you want us to do the days. whole show right yeah, now? I just, yeah, yeah tell I'm you really what, busy tell at ten. <laughs> hey, did you go get your free taco the other day? By the way, no, but you know what? I I didn't, but um, because I'm trying to lose weight. So, but I did eat some bacon. If that helps you, mm. <laughs> you didn't go get a taco, but you ate some bacon. Uh-huh. Bacon. But I, I how's just, that weight loss coming? <laughs> it's. No, it's I'm on the I'm on the protein diet. Oh, so I can eat all the bacon I want. <laughs> it's huge, right? Crispy bacon. But here's the deal: I had somebody say that they loved. Oh, it was it was our HR director. She listened to my show and she said, "I love the the taco talk." And and that was when you guys. What's up, were on. Donna? Naturally, yeah, it was Donna. So I'm like, you got to listen more because if you thought taco talk was funny, wait till you find out about 368 billion dollars. <laughs> Donna, I'll shave tomorrow. Don't worry. Yeah, she. In fact, she mentioned that in the memo. Jerem's always just I know. He's walking a, the edge with. He that walks stuff, the man. edge. That's why I think man, I, mean, I am just. That's crazy. why he always. The other that's day. why he buttons that top button on his shirt to keep all that <laughs> chest hair down, so it doesn't look like a beard. <laughs> that visual is horrible. If, if only I had been oh. ever uh, accused of such manliness. Yeah, you oh. are. come on. Come on. Okay, I'm bringing it back. I'm bringing it back to the show, man. Okay, Bring go back to the show. Back. So hey, what, what's on your show? David Nixon, former NFL mm-hmm. and BYU star linebacker on the show. He's going to weigh in on uh, how many surefire wins he thinks BYU will okay. have. Okay. And uh, if you haven't looked at the September schedule, Matt, and I know you have because you're a huge well, sports I, fan. Well, yeah, I did it yesterday. I don't want to brag. And a huge fan of BYU Sports Nation. Of course, I am. How, how many wins will BYU have in September? Ooh. Will that set the tone for the entire season? Yes, it will. Woo! Okay, so last David Nixon about that stuff. Okay, cool, cool. Then Eric Erie, a man who has, in what my producers have called, a mangled hand. One man, one hand. One hand. And he's still participating in baseball games somehow with a mangled hand. I feel like that's too strong of a, of a Yeah, mangled is kind of a weird word. <laughs> a lion got to Just it and a... thought it was a bone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> really, really graphic. He's got so. a dislocated slash partially broken Finger. Why don't we just say like a part, an injured hand? Mangled. We weren't yeah, exactly see, I went sure. With injured, so and my producer was like, "No, not strong enough. Mangled. Not a good enough tease." Yeah, he barely survived the lion's <laughs> grasp at Hogle Zoo. A paralytic hand. That's BYU, just gross. Don't the, do that. Yeah, just make it injured. Is, the point is, BYU baseball opens up a critical home yes. series without one of their go-to players. Well, with a one-armed in full bandit, capacity. Right? That's tonight at eight Eastern on uh, BYU Radio. He's going to join us in studio and talk <laughs> about what he what he can do. You guys, that's we'll a good sh- show. He'll, he'll show us the mangled hand. I think is what we're getting at. That's that's great. Is, viewer, that's not a great hey, tease. I don't viewer, know what is. Your discretion is advised. <laughs> I am. I'm going to go. In fact, I'm setting my DVR right now. Right Shouldn't here. it already be set like every day? I thought you had it on serious record. What the heck, man? Well, I know, but I was I was still watching some reruns of The Office. So is, okay, I, I, that, I didn't you know catch up, dude. Bandwidth. You know what? If it's that show, yeah. I'll give you a That's pass. All right. okay, I'll give good. you a pass. But I'm, I'm not doing that anymore because now I'm only going to watch your show. No, you need you, you need some office no, in your no, life. Uh uh-uh. uh. And I'm not talking to anyone but you guys anymore. Pam Pam. <laughs> Pam. Okay, you guys gotta go to your show. <laughs> I feel bad for you. If you think she's Man, cute chip. now, you should have seen her a couple years ago. <laughs> Man, chocolate chip. Man, chocolate chip. Uh-oh. Did we hit the – yeah, oh, darn it. We hit the office button. So yes, now we have did. every Stanley. office joke. Anyway, guys, have a great show. Thank you, Dr. Knock Matt. Knock them Stay dead. sweet, man. Woo. <laughs> Stay sweet. Remember who you are. Return with honor. Good stuff. Boy, boy, don't push office on them. The minute they go on the office tangent, that's – we've got to bring that up.
We need to start doing office quotes with them because they seem to know every one. Every last one. Uh, good stuff. What a great show. Are you kidding me? Holy cow. Abby Stevens. What? She's my hero now. Can you imagine being in a rollover, having your neck broken? We had Dave Barry earlier, and he taught us a lot about um, uh, economics and, uh, and, and the economy and how it impacts po- politics. And also we had uh, Pico Iyer who taught us about how to create stillness in our lives. Let me give you um, just just a little wrap-up for the show, okay? My hero is, is Abby, and uh, honestly, and Pico, because two people, different kind of worlds, but um, Pico had a great job in New York, life was good, and actually was at the top of his game and decided to kind of pull himself out of the game so that he could find some stillness and find the peace in his life. Abby, on the other hand, was about to be at the peak of her life, getting this, getting married. She'd found her husband. Life was great. A week before the accident, rolls the car and um, breaks her neck, which 18 years later is still, you know, affecting her. She can't use her right hand. She limps. She loses balance. And both of them basically, interestingly, turned to the same source. They both looked for stillness. They both went inward to find the peace and um, they used faith. They were reinforced by their relationships. But the more important thing was they, they were able to, um, to not, A, get caught up in the world, and B, not get torn down by the world, which is kind of how the world works, right? It's going to either try to elevate you, but you know the higher you get in the world, eventually there's going to be the fall, and the fall is eventually going to have to be dealt with as well. So two great lessons for, for us today. So I have two heroes of the day, Pico Iyer. And um, and Abby Stevens, two, I think, wonderful role models. That's why we do this show, folks, is we want to give you role models, people you can look to to find some light, some goodness. Again, not easy, and yet uh, we already see a million bad examples in the world. We don't always get to hear in depth the stories from the good examples. That's why we do it. So join us again tomorrow. We'll be back every Monday through Friday. Even Saturday we do a, a another show. I mean, come on. We're everywhere, and we can't do it if you're not here with us. So come back tomorrow, but do take some of the lessons that we learned today. Go be with your family. Be still. Find the stillness in your life. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Until tomorrow, take care. 